Hello everybody and welcome to another, by God, the last time we recorded one of these intros there wasn't a war in the Ukraine episode of Pottywood, the show where we talk about movies with the people who make movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... Well, that'd be me, Andrew Roger Carson. Forgive me, I am eating a piece of cheese. Really? Yeah. I know it's totally unprofessional, but the thing is, it's like, do would you can you put up with me for like one minute of chewing, or can you put up with me for probably two hours of my stomach saying, "Where's the food?" Wow! If we're recording this for two hours, then oh yeah, of course, yeah. You complete dick. Did you even forget the format of the show? I did, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, we definitely record for two hours. We don't record yes. the intro separate at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. But anyway, you know, I, I would have loved a, a nice, maybe, cheese, ham and pickle sandwich. But I guess you're here to provide the ham with your review of Babe. Yes. Yes, not much in the way of banter this week. So we're going to get straight into the review of last week's What's in the Box. which was... Well, there's a war on. I know. It is March, though, so happy March, everyone. Yes, hello. Uh, by the time this goes out, we could all be dead in the fires of nuclear warfare. But hopefully not. So give us a like first. <laughs> So, yes, Babe, uh, a movie from Happier Times, uh, 1995, I think it was, um, back when I was at school, and this movie came out, and I remember everyone was watching it apart from me, and it wasn't kind of like through a particular choice, it was just one of those movies that I just didn't watch at the time, that's pretty much it, it's the story of a young pig called Babe, who gets taken in by a farmer called Hoggett, played by James Cromwell, um, who I just think is wonderful in everything. Um, And he then becomes a sheep pig when the two sheepdogs of the farm um, are put out of commission. And it's it's a very charming story. It's based on the book by Dick Kingsmith called The Sheep Pig, and I do remember that always going around school. Loads of people were reading that. There was always at least one person in every English class that was reading The Sheep Pig at some point in time. Um, And it feels like a Chris Columbus film at times. It's not. It's got that kind of atmosphere, that kind of warm, kind of enveloping feeling that you get from something like Home Alone or the earlier Harry Potters. Uh, Even even the music's got like a John Williams-y kind of feel to it. And watching this movie, I was struck by how this is... It's an English book, but the primary cast in it are American, with some notable exceptions. And it looks like it was filmed in England, but it wasn't. It was filmed in Australia. And you don't know when it was set. You don't know where it's set. It's just at this point in time that feels like uh, just post-war Middle England. With exceptional cinematography to make it so gorgeous, gorgeous, just green rolling hills, and uh, this wonderful warm feeling f- from the uh, from the the atmosphere of the movie. It, it's like something out of Lord of the Rings at times. It reminded me of the Shire. <laughs> I knew that. I knew that was coming. I knew you yeah. couldn't get away with it. I couldn't know because the the barn is pretty much turfed. Yeah. In terms of performances, you've got everything focusing on the animals themselves and the the animated mouths, which were marvellous at the time, have not held up well. No. The puppetry more so, but it is painfully obvious now seeing yes. the difference between the live-action animals and the puppets. I think CGI has spoiled us. 
It it has very much spoiled us, you know, and, and this I think this is actually the movie that kind of started that CGI talking animal mm. craze that then leaked into like Doctor Doolittle and and everything else. I think this was the first time I think I ever saw that. Yeah, I think it was for most people. I mean, yeah. they, they tried to attempt it before then, but it, they just like get a a shot of a dog chewing on some peanut butter or something, and yes. then they dub someone's voice over it to match. This was the first time that they actually were able to animate a mouth talking. Yes, yes. And um, it was directed by a first-time director as well. Oh, was it? Yes, Chris Noonan. It was his first movie. Of course, he's gone on to direct since. He's a Australian director. He directed the um, Beatrix Potter movie with Renee Zellweger, Miss Potter. Right. Okay. So he went on. He went on to direct that, and he was mainly before this. He was a writer, so he he'd written stuff in Australia like Stepping Out, and there was a TV miniseries called Vietnam, which was about the uh, Australian soldiers in Vietnam, uh, which which was pretty good. I remember seeing it. Mm. And uh, the the funniest thing about this is it was actually released on the year of the pig, mm, which does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Yes, well, I'd say it was the year of the pig. Apart from all of those uh, pork sales in the US that dropped by twenty percent that year because of <laughs> yeah. this movie. <laughs> yeah, that was another thing that I remember from uh, that time period. Is just everyone was just going, "Oh no, look at the cute pig! We have to stop eating bacon." And then five minutes later, they'd be eating bacon again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, like, it, I was it, anyway. It affected them for 20%. Yes. Uh, I mean, this. The, the amazing thing is, I mean, a lot of people really think that this is uh, a George Miller movie because uh, he was a producer on it and it mm. was his dream project. He, he spent 10 years trying to bring this to the screen and it was mainly because the um, the visual effects were not available to make it. Up until that point. So realistically, when you look at it, this is George Miller's avatar. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's one weird way to think about it, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, um, yeah, I mean, the the biggest star in there is James Cromwell, the man who paid for his own Oscar campaign for Best Actor. <laughs> Fuck, he really believed he was bringing home the bacon. Oh, But, God. you know, if he would have paid more attention to the script, he would have realised he was in it for more than 17 lines. Because apparently he thought it was just a really quick and easy project because he thumbed through the script, so he had like 17 lines. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I'll do it. And then he actually has more screen time in the movie than he's ever had in a movie in his life. Yeah, uh, but yeah, he doesn't say much at all, does he? No, you know, which is good. You don't have to memorise any lines. Like, go and walk in that field and whistle. Yeah. You know, so, and, and then have the nerve to pay for his own Oscar campaign. <laughs> Ah, well, uh, fair play to him. At least he believed hey, well, in the project. Yeah, he got nominated. That's the yeah. main thing. And uh, well, the things I love about this movie, as I mentioned before, the cinematography is standout. The visual it's effects gorgeous, yeah. for that day were great. Oh yeah, you know, uh, and you can get away with them nowadays because of that age. Uh, has some nice music in it actually. Yeah, I watched it again. It it does have a John Williamsy kind of feel. Yes, and I think that was why I was ma- I was thinking it's got that kind of Chris Columbus feel to it as well. Yes, and also yeah. a little bit of trivia for you. And I know you're a big Matrix fan, so did yes. you know that there were two Agent Smiths in this movie? Yes, I did. Well, two of the agents anyway, because you got Hugo Weaving, and I was I watched it with the the kids, so I yeah. missed the actual cast credits at the very beginning. Because we were sorting sorting out some dinner and just trying to get them quiet and settle down, so I missed Hugo Weaving's voice. But as soon as um, as soon as the dog spoke, it was like, "Is that Hugo Weaving? 
Oh yes, it was. And yeah, the other one I can't remember his name, but uh, he's the he's the guy that plays um, Cromwell's son or son-in-law. Yeah, he's one of the other agents from it as well. Which makes so, sense if it was filmed in Australia because they would have got local talent. Yes, and it seems they only have ten people. Yes, and one of them, Sam Neil. <laughs> <laughs> he obviously wasn't available. The only thing that I don't like about this movie um, is the mice. You know the reason why they were put in there because apparently, um, it, it, I reckon that was a, a studio deal. Probably, it was like we we need to let people know what's going on <laughs> because they're too ignorant to actually pay attention. We need these mice to pretty much tell us the story. I'd, I've never liked the chipmunks. No, I've hated them. I, I would quite happily take Alvin, Simon, and Theodore and drop them into a blender. So. <laughs> So these mice, it's just like, oh, God, no, please, no. I don't need squeaky renditions of songs. I've lived through that kind of weird phase of hip-hop in the early 2000s where that was a thing. Just, no, stop it. <laughs> but yeah, um, so Babe was one of the biggest hits of that year also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a surprising one. I remember when it came out and everyone was going Babe crazy. It's like, where has this movie just come from? You know, and it was up against movies like uh, Apollo 13. You had Diod with a Vengeance uh, around that time. Mm-hmm. You had Casper, which was the other family-friendly movie. And then you had Under Siege 2, which, you know, well... It was Under Siege 2. So, yeah, uh, Babe was... It was just a major phenomenon movie. It's not something you'd have with a Happy Meal. You know, there's no, no. Babe toys coming out with your uh, McDonald's no. sausage and bacon <laughs> McMuffin. <laughs> One thing that I did like about it is is it's rather forthright in what actually happens. Yes. You know, it, it, they do say, oh, the pigs go away somewhere else. But um, they never kind of shy away from the fact that they are animals and they do get eaten at some point. Like there's the bit where Ferdinand is uh, talking about his um, the the duck the, the goose that they end up uh, no or was it a duck whatever the bird that ended duck, up duck goose duck duck goose that uh, got killed for Christmas dinner and he's quite sad about it and uh, was thinking oh that is actually true they're gonna have to have something for Christmas and uh, like I say I was watching it with the kids and I asked them afterwards and they say well yeah it's 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 a good film. But it's very sad. Um, but at the ending, it, it was happy in a sad way. <laughs> Which kind of sums it up. But so, yeah, they didn't was, like the beginning, though. Dark children's movies that we all used to grow up I know. Up God, I miss them. Yes. So you recommend Babe for anyone who has not seen it? Yeah, I do. Like I say, I don't like the, the mice. They can just go swivel. But the rest of the movie is it's a lovely, charming, and very, very warm family film. Um, I don't know much about the sequel, other than the fact that you can tell that the sequel was in trouble because they made that trope of taking X character and then moving them to a completely different location. That yes. was the opposite of the location in the first movie. But this one, it's a really nice story. Yeah, go out, rent it. Lovely. Yeah. Well, well, with that in mind, I guess we need to go and seek into some anniversaries, Steve. Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. We will get some new music for the next series, I promise. 
Yes. We'll figure something out. We'll, we'll have to pester Neil for some new tracks. Uh, anniversaries. Uh, well, I, I've pulled out four this week mm-hmm. uh, that were worthy of mention. Okay. And uh, the first one, can you believe, Steve? Mm-hmm. 35 years ago this week, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 Dream Warriors was released. Funnily enough, that is the only one that I've seen. Really? Really. You've not even seen the original? I've not even seen the original. Or the remake. Not seen any of them. Wow. Okay, yeah. how come you've seen this one but not the others? Um, I was at a friend's house and he was pretty much in, he was pretty into his horror. Um, and it was the first time I saw Evil Dead 2 as well. Um, I think it was about... Well, that's going to be eerie. I don't know, 14, 15 or something like that. And yeah, it was just like, oh God, I, I don't think I like this film. <laughs> well, can you believe uh, this was actually the debut of another director, Chuck Russell. Oh, uh, really? This was his first movie. Uh, and he obviously went on to direct uh, the remake of The Blob. Mm-hmm. Uh, the immensely classic The Mask, starring Jim Carrey. Yeah. And then uh, over the last couple of years, he's, he's kind of really... I wouldn't say vanished, but it, some very weird choices in his directing. He's recently he directed a Bollywood movie called Jungly. Okay. Uh, which which is kind of strange because he he directed a lot of big movies like Eraser, The Scorpion King. You know, movies that made reasonable amounts of money. Yeah, I, I can't say that uh, either Eraser or The Scorpion King were very good movies, but no, yeah, they, they were they, successful. They, they shifted some money. Actually, yeah. Eraser, James Cromwell. Hang on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> James Cromwell returns. Um, but anyway, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 Dream Warriors, uh, or as I call it, uh, Freddy Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. uh, is the infamous uh, part of the franchise where he starts terrorizing suicidal teenagers uh, in kind of a, a rehab uh, facility. Uh, this was actually supposed to be the final Freddy Krueger movie. Mm. Uh, but... It went on to earn more money than any others. It was the highest grossing nightmare film. And obviously people at New Line were like, well, f*** that. We're going to have part four out next year, then part five out the year after, then part six the year afterwards. You know, and and totally hammered Freddy Krueger into the ground to the point where he was just, it was just a cartoon copy. You know, he was was just the, he was the Arnold Schwarzenegger of horror. He was just (laughs) whipping out his one-liners do you think it was better or worse that someone like Jason was completely mute? Because you've, you've got Jason and Michael Myers, and both of them, not a word. No, and they still go to this day. Freddy Krueger has kind of phased out, especially since they did the remake. Mm. But yeah, even though he did have a, a very little bizarre cameo in Space Jam 2. But, uh, <laughs> which is a great thing to put in a kid's movie, by the way. Yeah. yeah Along with the droogs. So. Come on, Warner. Jesus Christ. Uh, this was also uh, a couple of other debuts here. It was the film debut of Patricia Arquette. Really? Yes. Who infamously got her head put through a TV yeah. in the movie, not in real life. Um, and it, it's it's very bizarre because you've also got Lawrence Fishburne in there playing one of the orderlies. You know, Ten years into his actual career, well, eight years since Apocalypse Now, I guess, when he first appeared. But he's actually playing an orderly in there. So his career was still on the ascent. And uh, funnily enough, the script 
was written as the first ever Hollywood script writing credit for a man called Frank Darabont. <laughs> oh, Mr. Um, the director of the show, Shank show Redemption, Shank Redemption yeah. and The Green Mile. And his first ever movie uh, writing credit was A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, what? Dream Warriors. I don't really suppose that's anything to be sniffed at. I mean, Johnny Depp's first on-screen credit was in the original. Yeah, I mean, horror does that for a lot yeah. of people. A lot of major stars kind of get their start off in horror. I Kevin Bacon. Now. Yeah, there's another one in, in the original Friday the 13th. Yes, also yeah. known as Babe. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> funny bit of trivia with you mentioning that you saw this on the same day as you watched The Evil Dead 2. This was an infamous story around this movie that the Freddy glove was stolen from the set, only to be discovered on the set of Evil Dead 2. Yes, I think I remember this one. And it even shows up on screen in the, it's in in the, the woodshed, woodshed, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that must have been Wes Craven and uh, Sam Raimi having a little fool around with each other. Uh, the interesting thing, I mean, yes, the, it's probably one of the most memorable, the visual effects especially, mm. uh, for the time, was absolutely incredible. The makeup was great. But strangely enough... It was originally not supposed to be the script. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 was the original movie to have the plot of Wes Craven's new nightmare. So that kind of meta-narrative. Yes. Yeah. Which they then abandoned and went with this Dream Warriors one. And then they went and made the amazing... And it is. It's amazing. Wes Craven's new nightmare is still one of my favourite horror movies of all time. I wanted to go see that at the cinema because that came out and I was 15. I was old enough to watch it. And I made the mistake of telling my mum that I wanted to go see it. And she said, no, you're not going seeing that. It's too scary for you. <laughs> I don't know why my mum suddenly sounds like Paul O'Grady because she sounds nothing like it. But, oh, you're, t- you're too young for that sort of thing. Yeah, but but and to be honest, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street for me, it's always the original, the first one. And Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two films, if those two films just existed and there the others didn't, I'd be fine with that. Uh, but out of all of the other movies around it, probably the best one out of all the others is A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors. Okay. Definitely Robert Englund's, like, it was his peak for Freddy Krueger. And he obviously went on to do even more Freddy stuff. But this was the point where he was still scary as the character. It was not vastly over the top it was starting to get there but this was still a horror franchise and not a kind of homage to you know corniness and cheeseball stuff that came afterwards with the dream master the dream child freddy's dead the final nightmare which was not final nightmare and then freddy versus jason i like freddy versus jason yeah i suppose you have to really yeah (laughs) you know but yes um so, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Dream Warriors, 35 years old this week. It's all right. Yeah. All right, then. What else do we have? Okay, can you believe, Steve? Mm-hmm. And you know this because I've already mentioned it. 20 years ago this week, Ocean's Eleven was released. Oh, yes. Yes. This kick started off kind of the, the cool revival of the early yes. 2000s, didn't it? And also created loads and loads of films and TV shows, which had that weird kind of shots... The you, soul bass style. Yeah, we have one shot kind of swooping on top of another and that first shot going out of frame and things like that. Yes, it, it, it reinstigated the coolness of like the, the 60s movie. 
like this. And uh, it's one of those movies that is just all around good. Mm, it is. It is. It's perfect. I will honestly go and say that it is absolutely perfect, this movie. But it almost wasn't. <laughs> and I shall explain this. Explain away, Andrew. I shall. Well, first of all, uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh, mm-hmm. uh, the master of... Well, he's just the master of his craft. He really is. Um, from everything from his debut with Sex, Lies and Videotape to his movies like Traffic, uh, Aaron Brockovich, Behind the Candelabra, uh, he just knows how to involve you in a story and make it look so cool as he's doing it as well. Mm. And, of course, you have probably one of the most impressive collection of casts other than Mars Attacks, which we'll get into next week. And uh, But it wasn't originally going to be George Clooney as Danny Ocean. Who was it? <sighs> Brace yourself. Originally cast in that role, apparently, and I'm sure Bill will tell me differently, Bruce Willis. Right. Uh, who had to drop out due to other commitments, and I'm guessing mm. that probably would have been with the whole nine yards or something like that. Yeah, I, I can't imagine Bruce Willis in this role because George Clooney has got that suaveness that uh, echoes the Rat Pack era, whereas Bruce yes. Willis, even when he is at his most charming, he's, he's missing that. Yeah, and I'm guessing around this time it would have been either Bruce was doing The Whole Nine Yards, Bandits, and Hearts War as mm. well. So he had all of them. So maybe it's a blessing that he did drop out because I doubt yeah. we would have. I mean, he makes a cameo in, is it Ocean's the, 12? Yeah, Ocean's 12, which is the weakest of the three. Yeah. As himself, which I don't know if that's the laziest kind of idea he's had since the last 20 films he's been in. Um <laughs> I just couldn't imagine Bruce Willis doing that. Was this also like the the solidification of the Brad Pitt eating in every scene cliche? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, that is definitely, (laughs) definitely there. Because it's a Um, drinking game in itself, isn't it? It is. It is. And it goes over how many movies? (laughs) All three of them, I think. All three of them. And I think he was doing the same thing to some degree in Fight Club as well. Yeah. But he was a bit leaner in that. Yes, then you have Don Cheadle doing the worst Cockney accent you will ever hear in your life, but somehow getting away with it. Yeah. Right, and that role, I think, was originally offered to Ewan McGregor, and then it was offered to Lenny James, who would have been perfect. Lenny James would have been absolutely amazing. Or Idris Elba, as he was younger. Yeah. You know, they would have got it. But Don Cheadle came in, and uh, he's uncredited in the movie. Yes, he is, isn't he? And do you know Why? Why? Because uh, he demanded top billing alongside Clooney and Pitt. And when he didn't get it, he said, well, I don't want to be credited at all. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't that big of a name at the time. No, I mean, he, was, he wasn't. He was well known in terms of being a solid performer, but he wasn't like a named name. No. Not he, in the same on. level as the Olympic team. It's like, come on, Don, you were doing a, like a, a five-minute scene in Rush Hour 2 the same year. Mm. <laughs> you know, but... Um, you know, and, and I like Don Cheadle. So I do. I. But it was a very Terence Howard <laughs> move, which is very prophetic, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine if they'd replaced Don Cheadle with Terence Howard in the second one. But then again, he was making Hearts War with Bruce Willis. Yeah. Um, stories that I like about it. I mean, you, you've you got an amazing cast there, and you, you, you have 
is James Caan and is it Casey Affleck? Yeah, you've got James Caan, Casey Affleck. They're playing got... the two brothers, aren't they? Yeah. Then you've got Matt Damon. Yeah. George Clooney, Brad Pitt, uh, Don Cheadle. Bernie Mac. Bernie Mac. Oh, God, what's the name of the old... Uh, the... Elliot Gould. No, and not, Carl not... Reiner. Carl Reiner, that's it. And then you've also got Julia Roberts. Yes. And... Um, Miss 20 million. Yeah, Mr. Oh, God, yeah. And Andy Garcia. So it is a hell of a cast. And Andy Garcia is the best thing in this movie. I'm yeah. telling you, he really is. I love Andy Garcia in this movie. It was like the role he was born to play. But the two brothers that Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck play mm-hmm. was originally cast as Luke and Owen Wilson. And wow. Luke and Owen Wilson dropped out to do the Royal Tenenbaums for Wes Anderson. Obviously showing their allegiance to Wes Anderson as they always do. And Danny Glover was actually cast in this movie as well. And he dropped out to do uh, the Royal Tenenbaums as well. So Wes Anderson was basically poaching all of Steven Soderbergh's cast. Uh, I didn't say that. I'm just saying it's it's quite a coincidence. It's a hell of a coincidence. Yeah. But um, the other little stories that I kind of got from this, especially from like uh, either talking with Bill or doing a bit of chatting around, um, it was it was party time for this cast the entire thing they were gambling in between the takes <laughs> they they had betty pools going on george clooney had a keg of guinness installed in his hotel room <laughs> now that that's hardcore i like that yeah I, I want to reach that level of fame where i can just say i want a keg of guinness installed in my hotel room and steven soderbergh originally wanted to make this movie in black and white i could see why i'm glad he didn't but I'm gl- yeah. i can see why you can kind of see that from the poster art. Yeah. There is of it. And uh, apparently Warner Brothers were like, yes, but we're going to get you to bring the cost of the movie down. So bring the budget down if you want to do that. And they're like, well, we can't really do that because all of the actors are already working for way less than their regular pay. Uh, so they ended up just sticking with colour. And the thing that really stands out about this entire movie, if you haven't seen it, listen to that soundtrack. Now, I was actually going to bring up the soundtrack. One, yes. it is a fantastic um, soundtrack with lots of stuff. Is it? Is it David Arnold, the the composer? Because I always kind of get him mixed up. Um, but it's a great soundtrack, and I went out and I bought the soundtrack. But it's horrible the way that they've done it because they've got lines of dialogue from the film, but those lines oh, of dialogue God. are over the music. Oh, why? I don't know. Like you've got the wonderful closing song. I think it's called Ninety Nine Police." Um, yes. And um, but it's got like the the voice clip of him going nine one one. What's your emergency? And then that over the top of it, it's like no. I want to listen to the actual music. I if I want to listen to the music and listen to stuff from the film, I will watch the film. I've bought the soundtrack because I want to listen to just the music. Thank you. It's annoying. Hot yeah. Fuzz did that as well. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Mm. Uh, but yes, um, Ocean's Eleven is 20 years old this week, and it is a classic. Absolutely. It is amazing. And go and check it out. There's two more on anniversaries this week. And although these films did not reach number one in the UK, or maybe even not even get a wide release, I thought they were worthy of mention. Okay, well, let's see what we've got then. You've probably not seen them, but I'll sell them anyway. Can you believe, Steve, mm-hmm. 30 years ago this week, 
a movie called Gladiator was released. And no, it is not the Ridley Scott Russell Crowe Gladiator. Oh, damn, because I was going to come in with I've seen that. Um, no. No. No, I haven't seen this one. Do okay. tell. Now, Gladiator was uh, like a young urban boxing movie, right? Uh, that was kind mm. of set in, I think it was Detroit. And it was directed by a director by the name of Rowdy Harrington, uh, which is a great southern name. That's brilliant. Uh, it is. Rowdy Harrington. He directed Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. Roadhouse. And he directed Striking Distance with Bruce Willis. So, Striking Distance. Yes. So he, he kind of made the kind of lower tier action movies, I guess. It was just kind of bordering through. And... Uh, it's the story of a young boy. Yeah, he lives with his father, but his father's like a, a serious like even gambler, played by John Hurd, who is the dad in Home Alone. Uh-huh. And he's obviously poor. He's left home alone a lot, and his dad is in a hell of a lot of trouble financially. And he's just moved to the area and goes into school, and it's a very race war type thing there. And there's an underground boxing events going on with some of the students one being cuba gooding jr and the main character is played by an actor by the name of james marshall and this was his first and last leading role in a movie prior to that he'd been a regular on twin peaks Uh, he was also in a few good men along with cuba gooding jr Mm -hmm. and it's a great movie it really is a great movie and has a really impressive surrounding cast because you've got the big bad guy who's running the underground boxing is Brian Dennehy, the legend of Brian Dennehy. Mr. One Half of FX himself. Yes, he's the F. And uh, he, Brian Dennehy even has a boxing scene at his old age and actually kicks the shit out of this guy. Uh, you've also got um, our other favourite husky-voiced actor, in Robert Legia. Yes, go on. You want to say it? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Family Guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know you reference Family Guy to every single thing. If you're giggling, I know that's what it's about. Uh, but you've got Ozzy Davis in there as well. And um, it was the first ever produced movie by Frank Price. Do you know who Frank Price is? No. Frank Price... He was the head of Columbia Pictures throughout the 70s and 80s. Right. So he would have been the guy that greenlit, like, Ghostbusters and stuff like that. Ventures of Baron Munchausen, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff. Iron Eagle, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, even Mm -hmm. all stuff like that throughout the 70s and 80s. And then he obviously, when he'd stepped down from there, uh, went on to producing films. And this film was released through Columbia but this film actually did not make that much money it was a bit of a flop and a disappointment and kind of terminated the deal that he had with the studio so frank price went on to set up his own production company called savoy pictures which you may have heard of rings of bell yeah are they doing more kind of like our housey stuff now i'm guessing so yeah for some strange reason, I had this vision that they did the movie Bound, but I'm probably wrong. But yeah, it was majorly independent stuff. I don't think they really did many big movies. I could be wrong on that. Um, but yeah, uh, Gladiator is a real cult classic. Hmm. Um, I actually do like the movie. And funnily enough, I was talking with Richard Mirish about it. 
and uh, we, we've both kind of got a bit of a thing for this movie. Uh, and it's worthy of seeing. Uh, it's worthy of tracking down if you can find it. It's uh, If you like your boxing movies, I know it was kind of overshadowed by another movie that came out called The Power of One that had Stephen Dorff and Morgan Freeman in it. And uh, it was set against like Apartheid with a very young Daniel Craig in it as well. But Gladiator is uh, it, it's a killer little movie to watch. Okay. It really is fun. Cool. Oh, right, so... We've got one more. Let's make it a good one, Andy. What have you got for us? Well, I will do my best, but anime fans rejoice. Your mm. time has come. 18 years ago this week, Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence was released. Good. And you've not seen it, have you? No. Of course you haven't. Of course. Well, it was directed by uh, Mamoru Oshii, who directed the first Ghost in the Shell movie, which is undeniably a classic. Uh, which you probably haven't seen either, but he'd also uh, directed uh, animated movies like Avalon, Skycrawlers, other movies like that. The reason why I brought Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence up is because this was the first ever anime movie to be nominated for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, okay. No, that is a that is a bit of a coup, yeah. That is huge. When yeah. you consider movies like Akira and stuff like that that are monumental in animation... This movie was the first ever anime to be nominated for the, one of the most prestigious awards in all of film. That pretty much says how monumental this movie is. The other monumental thing about it is, uh, I think it was Studio IG or Production IG, whatever the company was for Mamoru Oshii, uh, actually co-financed this movie with Studio Ghibli. Right. This was the first ever time this had been done and it was mainly because the budget of this animated movie was 20 million which was huge huge for an anime movie um you know you, you think 20 million you think oh you know that's a you know that's just just a little bit over a, an independent movie but for animation that amount of money is huge well what was the average budgets for an anime around about that time around that time i'd say probably a quarter of that so around about five yeah, I'd, I'd say between five to eight million, maybe, uh, and that's for something major. Uh, I mean, when you look at it, uh, it's like Jay says today: an episode of an anime series is around one million per episode. Ah, inflation! Don't you just love it? Exactly. Um, but I'm a big fan of Ghost in the Shell, the anime movies. I think you know, every one of them don't seem to carry on, but this one actually does carry on from the first Ghost in the Shell movie. Uh, beautifully animated absolutely luscious to look at there's detail in some of those scenes that it's like that must have taken years to do um, because it's, it is so intricately detailed in it and it's not in the box but I do say you should check it out uh, by yourself uh, especially if you want to see Mamoru Oshii's love of beagles Oh. There's something very strange about Mamoru Oshii that in every single thing he does, there's a beagle. It's, it's kind of his Hitchcock cameo, but he has a beagle because in real life he has a beagle or had a beagle. He incorporates it into all of his work. Something is telling me that I already knew that. Yeah. If you saw the Scarlett Johansson um, version of Ghost in the Shell, there's even a beagle in that. And Mamoru Oshii ah. didn't even direct that, but it was an homage to it because everyone knows he has this... Uh, love of beagle hounds. Oh, 
But so, I haven't seen that one either. And even on the poster for Ghost in the Shell 2, there's a freaking beagle hound on the poster for it. So, yeah, he's definitely into beagles. Oh, yeah. But he's, you know, he's never done a beagle movie. He's a beagle maniac. Oh! <laughs> but, yes, uh, I wanted to include that because I thought that the first ever anime to be nominated for the Palm Door, which is like the crowning achievement of uh, the Cannes Film Festival. If you've won that, you are instantly going to be released all over the world. Yeah. Be nominated for it, for an anime movie, which anime movies are never seem to be taken as seriously as other big movies. Not in uh, the West, at least. No, unless, you know, it's um, it's just stuff like uh, Princess Mononoke and, and all the stuff from Ghibli. It's basically, uh, if it's got Miyazaki's name on it, Oh, if Miyazaki's name's on it, it, it's it's guaranteed to be a record breaker. You know, and, and this is kind of co-Miyazaki because obviously his studio was involved in co-producing on it. Mm. So it kind of gets a, a really big rub. But um, it, it's it's an impressive feat. It really is. But uh, anime films, they really make piss-poor transversions of them. They're like games. It's really piss poor transversions of them to film. And if you've ever seen that version of Fist of the North Star that they did live action, uh, and it's worse is one of my friends, Gary Daniels, was the lead in that. But And then you had Chris Penn, and it was terrible. And that's probably the reason why Akira has still not gotten off the ground as a live action, and I don't think it should. It's, I don't know why there is this obsession with uh, with adapting films from uh, anime into live action. I, I, it's like looking at all the Disney stuff which they brought out recently. Live action Beauty and the Beast. Live action uh, Jungle Book. It's not live action. It's all on blue screen and you're drawing in CGI. It's still animated. I don't, I don't see the point. You've got the you've got the original, and the original is this wonderful little time capsule of uh, of gorgeousness and awesomeness. So why do you want to spoil that? Hey, if it does something different, then that's fair enough. But I watched the the well, I can't even call it live action. The CGI version of the Lion King, and it was mm. like, why bother? Because it's the exact same. Yeah, story. and so was Beauty and the Beast. It yeah. was exactly the same, and it was like, okay, yeah, it was, it was well made. But it's not something that I felt I needed to see again. No. But anime, they have the ability to do something different with it. And I'll tell you when it has been done good. And that was a couple of years ago when they did Alita Battle Angel. I was just thinking of that. I did see that at the cinema. Yeah. I thought that was I thought that was a wonderful film, but I think it, it was is. leaning a bit too heavily on the sequel bait. And I don't think we're ever going to see a sequel to it. Well, true. But it was very faithful mm. to the anime, although stretched out by an extra two and a half hours because the original anime was only an hour long. But uh, and it was great, beautifully animated as well. Yeah. But I went to see this, and I hadn't seen the anime in at least twenty years. But when I sat down to watch this, I remembered things about it, and it was like, "That's good. I've never had that experience before." Mm. where it's like, oh my god, this is actually really... Thing. And I've only ever saw the anime once. But when I was watching the live-action movie, it was a case of, I'm just getting flashbacks. I know where this story is going. So it's obviously had a, such a good effect on me, and, and it speaks well for how it's made. Because now I actually want to see how it all goes, and will they have this scene in it that comes up later on? Anyway, getting back to Ghost in the Shell 2, yes, I would, I would recommend it. The first Ghost in the Shell movie is always going to be the better movie. 
but this is a nice add-on that uh, you'll enjoy if you love luscious, beautiful anime. Okay. Well, that's four really, really cool choices. Yeah, I mixed it up a bit. Yeah. I'm actually surprised that out of all of them, I was able to say, I've seen two of them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and one of them being just the odd number in a uh, Nightmare on Elm Street series. How confusing. Uh, well, I think it's about time that we got our guests in. But before we do, here's a quick word from our sponsor. You know, there are many different reasons why you would need a will, trusts and protection of your estate following your death. At the end of the day, uh, you want to pass it along to who you want without those unwanted clawing at your hard earned. In situations where you hate members of your family and you don't want them to have your stuff, or if you're with a partner long term and are unmarried, if that partner has children from a previous relationship, or if you just want to give specific gifts to people, you need a specific kind of lawyer. That being Morton Young Solicitors. If you want to safeguard your assets from divorce, bankruptcy, creditors, those bad addictive habits, you need a lawyer who really works with you and dedicates their career to helping individuals and getting the right results each time. You need a lawyer to be approachable, explain the layout and answer every phone call that you make. That is my solicitors. Contact Andrew Young at Morton Young Solicitors for a free first consultation. Morton Young, your personal professional for wills, trusts, powers of attorney, probate and administration of estates, as well as personal injury and litigation. My solicitors, call Andrew Young at 0161 464 9731 or email andrew.young at mortonyoung.co.uk today and quote Poddywood as your reference. Well, you can't have a fresh plate of Poddywood without a fine wine to go with it, uh, meaning you can't exactly have a good run without a midnight run. And I guess every season we all look forward to having our MVP, John Ashton, join us on the show. And guess what? Today is that day. He's here to discuss his varied career throughout the 2000s and join in in his birthday celebration, which was yesterday. Happy birthday, John. Happy birthday, John. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was the uh, Tuesday 2222 day. <laughs> in some circles, that's 666 added up. <laughs> but yes, as always, the legendary John Ashton, straight from his home in Colorado. Good afternoon, John. How are we? I'm fine. I'm cold. It's snowing and it's minus six, but it's all right. You know, I mean, I'm inside in a warm place talking to you. So it's all good. <laughs> yes. We like to catch you in all seasons. <laughs> yes. Because I think last time we talked to you, or it might have been the first time we did, you, you were saying that you were recording it on your balcony and it was just starting to get a little bit chilly. So you're out there wrapped up and you're having a cigar while you were talking to us now. It's like, nope. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I told you, I went out to the garage to get my headphones. It was minus six, and I had to get flying back in. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I, I was going to have to bundle up to do the show, you know, but, you know. I bet you had trapped in paradise flashbacks again, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. We've got some talk on that, because ever since we've had George on the show, he came on and did two episodes, uh, but I'll get to that in a little while, but... Right now, you can officially say you are actually in a part four. 
Yes, part four. Am I, am I the first? First I, part, part four? I think he's beat Bill Daly by one episode, but Bill Daly is slowly catching up because he's on again in a couple of weeks. Yep. Oh, but okay. I found out something today by uh, doing a little bit of research. Did you know that IMDb is actually stating that you are set to return to Beverly Hills Cop 4 and that Judge Reinhold has turned down the Santa Claus 4 to return also? Really? Well, you know more than I do then. No one, <laughs> I think you need to get in touch with Netflix. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm going straight to Jerry Bruckheimer. <laughs> Brooke, what's going on? I mean, it's, it's there. Yeah. And the strange thing is, I mean, it's on IMDb under the Beverly Hills Cup 4. Because I thought, I'll, I'll just have a check. They've been talking about doing it for a long time, but I haven't had any word about it other than what I read, you know. So I, I don't know any, any more than you do. Yeah, the top bit of trivia on IMDb for Beverly Hills Cup 4 says John Ashton is set to return. And, you know, IMDb lies. But when I saw the one that Judge Reinhold has turned down the Santa Claus 4, it's like, realistically, this has got to be true because no one wants to turn down a Disney movie. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's where the safe money is. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to turn down this one. I think, You know, if we all come back, if Judge and I come back and, and you know, we're back to the Three Musketeers again, I, I can't see anybody not uh, turning something else down to be one of to be a part of that, you know. I haven't talked to Judge in a while, actually, but uh, we, we usually keep in pretty good contact. But um, and, uh, I know they got that London Comic Con is this weekend, isn't it? This is, are they, yeah. is it going on now? Oh, I think so. I think he's there, isn't he? I don't know if he's there, because he, he and I did that a couple of years ago together with Stephen Burkoff. Oh, wow. Trip. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of fun. Stephen was there for a day, and he, he didn't show up the second day. <laughs> <laughs> that just says uh, it all. Pretty it's much, not, yeah. not really his cup of tea, I guess. But well, speaking anyway, of conventions, we actually saw Judge Reinhold, didn't we? We um, did. Yeah, we saw Judge because he was there at the um, you know Andy Cleek's for Love of um, Comic Con. I know that you were the one with Judge in. Um, was it Edinburgh? It was Edinburgh, wasn't it? Ed, yeah, um, Edinburgh, yeah. Yeah, cause that's where we kind of met each other for the first time, very slightly. Right. Um, right. But yeah, when they did one for, um, I think it was for Love of 80s or something, and something they had the Gremlins. Like it was Gremlins, yeah. wasn't it? Because he was part of the, the Gremlins. I don't know if they wanted me to come back to London because I was kind of a pain, but uh, not not my fault, but... Uh, that that's when I got the uh, had to go to the hospital. I was in the hospital in London. I had an emergency surgery there, and it was a real nightmare. I mean, it was weird. It was it was you know I was sitting there signing autographs and stuff, and I was, I thought I had something in my eye, and I started putting eye drops in, and uh, then later they came over and I said they and I said it feels like I'm looking through a screen door or something and. And he said, right, hospital now. And I went to the emergency room, and they put me in the hospital, and I had a detached retina. Oh, and, wow. And he said I had, I had to get emergency surgery, and then he wanted to keep me in the hospital that night, overnight. And I said, no, I got to work tomorrow. So I went back to the Comic-Con. To work. I left the hospital, and I had a patch over my eye doing the autographs and and it was it, uh, social media must have picked it up because I had a line a mile long, and everybody was, "How's your eye, John? How's your eye?" <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I mean, the fans, the fans were great about it, you know, but it, 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 it was kind of a snafu in the whole whole process there. But So, does that mean you got the full benefit of uh, the English NHS while you were here and saved a lot of money on an operation? <laughs> Nah, no, that was no. That's another story. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but you know the thing was, and we're we're going to talk about this later, I think. But the thing was, I had brought my golf clubs over there, and I had planned to to go up to Scotland, to St Andrews to play to play golf, and I had booked my my room up there and all that, and then all of a sudden that happened, and uh, I couldn't fly anyway because of the stuff they put in my eye. So I took the train up to, to uh, St. Andrews and I sat on the golf course for six days on the 17th hole watching people come in and out. And it was so frustrating, you know, because I couldn't play. And uh, the funny thing is the, the, a foursome came by and they were going over the bridge to 18. And I said to the caddy, I said, would you take a picture of me on the bridge? <laughs> so, so I've got the picture now. I stood on the bridge and waved my hat and... And, this, and the caddy says, you look like a champion, man. And I said, yeah, I wish I could play, you know. And anyway, that's it. So that, that, that whole London thing was kind of uh, wacky, but it was fun. Yeah, I can just imagine you on the golf course with one eye patch on doing more slicing than a butcher. Just constantly. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah, well, yeah when, they, when they say keep your eye down, that was it, too. That was the truth. <laughs> Well, well, funny enough, speaking of fun, uh, as I mentioned uh, just before we actually came on the air, uh, we started off the season with George Gallo, mm-hmm. uh, a mutual friend right. of us both now. Uh, and yes, I did ask him about the train story, of which uh, he kind of told us a bit, but we kind yeah. of feel there's something else here because he, he says he can't remember. So he says he remembers you guys were drinking and you got off and apparently you had to run for the train with it because you had to restock. Well, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. <laughs> the, 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 those were my old days, my the old the old days that I did that. But. The Marvin days. <laughs> yeah, and we stayed up all night on the train, and George had his guitar, and we sat up playing the guitar and singing, and had the greatest breakfast ever on the, on the bar car there, and the pancakes, the greatest pancakes I ever had. Yeah, it was see, a fun trip. That's all the stuff that he never mentioned. You mentioned that there was alcohol involved, which, naturally. Um, but <laughs> he didn't mention anything about well, breakfast foods or guitars or anything. But he did mention one thing. He did mention, was it the Circle K? Mm. Oh, see, now he, now he mixed it up. It was a Safeway market, not a Circle Oh, okay. All oh, right. That's why I when you, you said Circle, I read the Circle C. And I, I don't remember that story. No, it, it was a Safeway market, not a Circle K market. Okay. <laughs> well, you're going to have to visit that episode. They have lovely things to say about you, as yeah. you know, everyone Well, does. The, the De Niro, the funny thing that De Niro did, because uh, that was really the only thing to do, was to walk down to the Safeway market. It was it was like a half a mile away, you know, and you walk <laughs> to the same. So Bobby and I were sitting in our chairs on the set one day, and these two crew guys walked by, and... And one of them said to the other one, what'd you do last night? And the other one says, oh, I walked down to the Safeway. And De Niro looked up and he said, really? Which aisle were you in? <laughs> that, was the one. that was the one. Yeah, that's the one that George said. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, uh, so we're here about to talk about your career moving on. We kind of ended off with Instinct, which was the last project 
that uh, we discussed on your last episode. Closing down the 90s. Closing yeah. down the 90s. Nineties, and you kind yeah. of entered 2000. Yep, we entered 2000 with a project called Avalanche. Yikes. You remember this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I do. You know, we shot it up in Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, and then we moved over to another little town, Windsor. I think it was something like that. It was about a half an hour away from Anchorage. So <laughs> you remember? You know who uh, uh, Arlie Ermy is? Played that drill sergeant in, uh, in oh, the movie. Oh, Arlie Ermy. Yes, yes. Full Metal Jacket and Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Yes. Well, he was in the movie with an avalanche with me. <laughs> so we were going to move the hotel from one hotel to the other to go up to the other town to shoot up there, and I was going to the uh, the laundry room to, uh, to do my laundry, and and uh, <laughs> and uh, and Arlie said, "Where are you going?" I said, "Well, I got to go wash my my underwear and stuff," and, and he says, "What do you got to wash those for?" And I said, "Well, we're going to go up there, and I want to clean my my underwear and stuff." And he goes, "You don't clean underwear," he says. <laughs> Go to Walmart, buy a six-pack, it'll last you 12 days. <laughs> <laughs> so you wear one side for six days, and uh, anyway. <laughs> well, because he was a drill sergeant, I'm guessing he's probably, you, know, you wear it two days on the front, two days in the back, turn it inside, exactly. do it another two days. Yeah, yeah then he said, then you throw them away and go buy another six-pack. Don't wash them. <laughs> <laughs> he was pretty funny. But it was so, that was a pretty pretty interesting thing to do. I mean, it didn't didn't do well at the box office, but work wise, you know, in Anchorage and all around Alaska, it was it was it was a trip. With the the, the northern lights were absolutely unbelievable. We were on the set one day and shooting something, and somebody ran in and said the the lights are out. You know, we all ran outside the soundstage, and it was just gorgeous. It was unbelievable. Mm. It's it's weird, you know. Sometimes you do movies that don't do well, but you had a blast doing them. (laughs) (laughs) That was going to say because in the last episode we talked about uh, your time doing Trapped in Paradise, and that was a snow movie, and it seemed like it was absolute hell to shoot, and yet this is also a snow movie, and yet it turned out to be a lot of fun. What was the main difference between the two then? Well, I mean, I mean, just being up in Alaska was kind of a trip, you know. I mean, talking to the people up there and going to these little towns, and I just I find that exciting, you know. And it was fun, and the people I worked with were fun, and it was just it's just a cool place to shoot. I had a good time, and trapped in paradise, you know, that was miserable, you know. But but the movie came out pretty good. Well, George has actually mentioned that uh, a lot of people who have been coming up to him in recent years who've trapped in paradise saying uh, that they now have a newfound appreciation for it. Has has that happened to you? Have you had people saying, oh, I actually kind of like that movie that you made way back when? Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot, actually, you know? Uh, You know, because I'm mostly known for Beverly Hills Cop and Midnight Run and stuff like that, and... But I just did this autograph show in, uh, in, in Hollywood, and... And I couldn't believe the a number of people that came up and and, and and kept quoting lines from some kind of wonderful, you know. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, and uh, it's kind of one of those things that people just find somehow. And 
like Midnight Run, you know, that that's a, a famous story. I mean, I had a meeting with uh, with uh, Henry Winkler for, for to do a project, and and that was right after Midnight Run came out. And I mean, he just he just said, "What a fantastic movie! Why why isn't why isn't that being nominated for stuff?" And he said, "What a great movie!" It took the audience time to find that movie. Yeah. And now it's like a cult hit. Mm-hmm. But when it first opened, well, I think I told you the story about when it opened. But uh, I mean, they just it, it was never publicized, and and uh, when it first came out, and finally it took years for people to find it. Now it's a big cult movie. You know, it's. But it's kind of weird that way. Yeah, and funny enough, in, in kind of doing the research, uh, there was another film that kind of cropped up around this time, and you're obviously known for being in, um, I, I guess you call them like gun movies, action movies, and things like that. And you did a small film called Bill's Gun Shop. Right, right. Okay. I, which, which, from what I'm reading up, it seemed like a very kind of anti-gun message movie. Well, it sort of was. I, I played Bill, the gun shop owner, and... Uh, Cooper uh, played the the young kid that worked for me in the gun shop, who 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 has since become a terrific director. He he directed the thing with uh, uh, Jeff Bridges. Um, yes, Scott Cooper. Um, uh, Scott Cooper. Yeah, he played yeah. the kid in it, and uh, you know now he's a big director. But yeah, he directed he, um, Richard uh, the film Richard Mirisch uh, produced Black Mass with Johnny Depp. Yeah, and yeah. out of the furnace and and movies like that, he really has come along. I didn't even realize it was him until you just said that. Yeah, yeah, he he. I worked with him on Bill's Gun Shop, and he hasn't hired me, but he bitch is all right. But <laughs> 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 well, what was the name of the what was the Jeff Bridges movie? That was it was a good movie. Really oh, good Crazy movie. Heart. Yeah, Crazy Heart. Yeah, what an amazing great, movie. It was wonderful. It was a good movie. Yeah. This is all stuff for in the box for you, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say because I, I know of Crazy Heart. I've not seen it. I just I'm aware of the poster of Jeff Bridges playing guitar. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good movie. Yeah. So I mean, how how was uh, Bill's Gunshot? Because uh, it's it's a movie that's kind of been forgotten about a bit. It was an independent, very small movie, anyway. You know, and a, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Tom Bauer. He was in uh, Die Hard. He played the crazy janitor down in the basement. You know? <laughs> Marvin. Marvin. His name was Marvin, yeah. Uh, th- that's Tom Bauer. He's a good friend of mine. We play a lot of golf together. Well, he was good friends with the director uh, of that of Bill's Gun Shop, so he introduced me to him, and that's how that all happened. And mm-hmm. So we went to Minneapolis and, and shot it, and kind of interesting. It was fun. It was a cool movie. But, but you, like I say, you know, it, it's one of those things that you know wasn't studio backed and very independent, you know. So uh, some would call it a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quoting. <laughs> and we didn't have any, a Marvel we movie. Didn't, <laughs> we didn't have any flying guns in it, you know, or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started on these Marvel movies, no one. Oh, we I will. guess some people. I guess some <laughs> people like them. But. Uh, well, speaking of flying, you ended up coming over to the UK to uh, star in a, uh, a mini series called Family uh, back in two thousand three. No, that wasn't me. Is that not you? <laughs> no. Ah, that's what you get for stealing my question, Steve. I would have asked it right. <laughs> All it, right, it, fine. It, 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 Ask the question properly two, then. <laughs> 2003 called Family? 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So you were there, you were having your eye worked on at the time, and somehow they filmed you and you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll just move the camera to his bad side. And that right. Yes, yes. Yeah, apparently you played a character called Martin in two episodes of a British TV series called Family. No, you know what? I, I think there's an English actor named John Ashton. Oh, someone's well credited, credited you in it. Oh my God, we feel like such idiots. Oh no, 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 no. no, no. The full happened. blame goes on the person. It's it's on John's IMDb. Yes, that's true. That's I, true. Yeah, I know. I've seen a couple of things on there that I haven't done. Oh well, this but episode I, is going to be absolutely brilliant from here on in. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're on thin no, ice until we get to God Baby Gone. <laughs> no, the funny thing. No, I think there's an English actor, John Ashton, and he's the one that did it. Because uh, wow. I, I, I looked it up, I think one time. But but I'll tell you that the weird thing is, Denver is only sixty miles from where I live, and you know they've got theater down there, and there's a there's a John Ashton down there in Denver, huh. and I was I was playing golf one day up here in Fort Collins, and somebody said, "Hey, what I what happened to you? Why weren't you in that show that night?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And he. This other John Ashton was doing a play down there, and these people that I know were happened to be down in Denver shopping or something, and saw that that, that the play was on, and they bought tickets and got a hotel room and spent the night and went to, and went to the play, and they said, and you weren't even in it, and I said, no, that's the other guy, and this guy, this guy, <laughs> this guy's been driving me crazy, and he's a member of Screen Actors Guild, and he's he's supposed to go by John Carvin Ashton. And he never does. And and I, I've met him at a couple of, of uh, shindigs down in Denver. And I said, why don't you change your name? And he says, you change yours. You know, he's one of those guys. I said, well, I think, I, I think a lot of people know me, but when they know you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it one of those situations where they come up to you and just say, uh, oh, I'm looking for this John Ashton who was in this. Well, that's not me. Oh, well, I've got $50,000. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'll take yeah. his pay for using my name. <laughs> really, really. Well, yeah. that happens. Well, in, in, in that case, I guess we've got to talk about gargoyles because apparently <laughs> you're in a movie called Reign of the Gargoyles. Reign of hope. the Gargoyles, yeah, shot that in Bulgaria. Sofia, Bulgaria, actually. I got a phone call. This is no kidding. I got a phone call like on a Friday afternoon. And, um, the guy that was, and I can't remember his name, he was doing that movie over there, and he told the producers he wanted me to play the general. So uh, I literally got the call like on a Friday afternoon, and, and they wanted me to be in Bulgaria on Monday. Well, I had, to, I had to get all my stuff together, and I had to fly, took a flight from Denver to, uh, to Frankfurt, Germany, Frankfurt to Dusseldorf, and Dusseldorf to Sofia, and went right to work on Monday, and I was exhausted. But uh, yeah, that was a that was a, yeah that was a weird movie. <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of movie, Steve, that I think you would love. I'm looking it up right now, and it actually is. Um, for those of you who, who don't know this one, um, just looking at the box art on IMDb, it's ripped off the exact same font from the Disney cartoon Gargoyles. Yes. But yeah, it's uh, U.S. fighter pilots fighting Nazi-controlled mythological gargoyles. Now, how on earth can that not be a hit? Yeah, well, no, it was actually it was actually sort of interesting. 
I've never seen it, but it was kind of interesting. <laughs> Just take the money and tell I, them it was the other John. No, I... Yeah. <laughs> there are several things that I've done that I've never seen. I don't go see my stuff, so... You know, I even the ones that are hits, you know, I go to the premiere and that's it. And I never see it again. So I'm just, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I've seen it. I, I can't change it. It is what it is. And, uh, you know, uh, there's no, you know, why watch it again? I've watched Midnight Run a couple of times only because, and it's one of those movies I flicked by it and uh, on my TV and then the, the, this one scene was on and I went, oh yeah, I remember that scene and then I started watching it again. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I really don't. I, I don't know why. I just, I, and like I say, there's a, there's a few things I've done that I've never seen. So, mm. you know. We were doing Midnight Run and, and uh, uh, Bobby went to Daly's one day and he came back and I said, well, well, you went to Daly's? And he said, yeah. He said, but he only goes once. To, he wants to see the cinematography, and he wants to see his wardrobe to make sure that looks good. He looks at all the technical stuff, you know, mm, not, his, yeah. not his performance. I understand that. I think for an actor, that's probably the only way you can keep sane, really, isn't it? Because if oh, you yeah, go I mean, in and it, analyze everything, it's just going to drive you crazy. Sure, but I mean, I mean that even goes for the final production, you know. I mean, I'll go see, I'll go see at the premiere, and I'll sit there and I'll go, "What happened to that? Why didn't they?" You know, and I start analyzing everything. It makes me crazy, so you know. And I'm, I'm a, I'm a basically a stage actor. You know, I got my degree in theater and did a lot of theater in Germany and England and Scotland and the United States. And you know, you don't get your chance to see yourself when you're doing a play you know you're up there and it's your deal that's it that's why i always say you know theater's the only actor's medium you know because it's 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 you and the audience and that's it and nobody can yell cut and nobody can say let's do it again and uh so uh, the, the the theater is the only actor's medium uh, film is basically a director's medium and television is basically a producer's medium no, that's, that's just that's just the way i feel you know i just i know what i did you know i mean when i'm on the <laughs> set and and you know when i'm doing a play you know when you're on and when you're off you 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 know that mm. you can just feel it from yourself from the audience you can feel that vibe from the audience on stage and you know when you're hitting it and when you're missing it you really do so i don't need, need to go see a film to know if i hit it or missed it i really don't Unfortunately, sometimes they take the the scenes that I missed rather than hit. <laughs> <laughs> well, in speaking of a director's medium, uh, you then oh, oh, I hate to say uh, reemergence because you actually were working, but uh, for a big Hollywood movie, it was Ben Affleck's transformation from uh, an actor into a first-time director with mm -hmm. Gone Baby Gone. Right. So, how did this all come about uh was it uh your previous relationship with maybe ed harris or was it a uh, something you auditioned for or were you just in the right place at the right time for it no i was uh i was the first one cast in it actually oh. really um yeah ben affleck wanted me um ben had done marty breast told me this by the way um ben did that uh, movie with marty um jiggly when they did Jiggly, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Uh, and Marty told me this, that, that Ben came up to him one day on the set and said, I want to be your next John Ashton. <laughs> and Marty said, what do you mean? And he said, well, John's done two movies with you and nobody else has. Because Marty never cast the same people twice. But yeah. he did with me. So Ben said, I want to be your next John Ashton, which was kind of cool. And uh, so when Gone Baby Gone came up, I got a call from my agent and said, Ben wants you to do this movie. So, you know, I did. Uh, and I, I had, not only that, I had read all of Dennis Lehane's books. I said, wow, you know, to do a, a Dennis Lehane, you know, book and it'd be fun. So, uh, yeah. And I didn't find that out until I got to Boston and the casting director came over to me and said, you know, you're the first one cast. Ben insisted on having you, which was kind of a compliment, which is nice, you know. Yeah. No, so I so then when I, I made a phone call to the production office and I said, by the way, who's playing my partner? And they said, well, we're trying to get Ed Harris. And I said, oh, that's perfect. That's great. You know, we were going to ask you about that because you've told us previously that you two have quite a history going back in the theater. So what was it like when you when you were on screen together? Oh, it was just like old times, you know, it was just we trust each other so well, you know, that yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we did True West together on stage and both won the Drama Critics Award and. The first film we did together was Borderline with Charles Bronson in 1980. Wow. Oh, my God. I remember that movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we played. I played the Border Patrol guy, and Ed played the bad guy in it, you know, the mule that was smuggling them all in, and, and I played one of the Border Patrol agents with Bronson. And uh, that was kind of a trip. You know, that was one of the first major films. I did that after Breaking Away, actually. But um, And then Eddie, Eddie and I did True West right after that. Uh, in 81 we did borderline in 80 and uh, so we'd been working together and, and we were in this theater group the met theater in hollywood you know we've been together for 30 years so it was just great working with him again you know he's a great actor there was no danger of him uh trying to strangle your face this time <laughs> <laughs> what trying to rip my lips off yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean <laughs> <laughs> the, the the relationship between the characters, you know, Ed Harris and yourself and these characters, you can tell mm. that it really did give off the vibe of these two guys who were partners for many, many years, you right. know, and the natural chemistry yeah. was there. And I think uh, the the only thing that really uh, acted you guys off the screen was Titus Welliver's mustache. <laughs> <laughs> That that must uh, we've had this conversation before when we uh, reviewed uh, when Steve watched Gone Baby Gone. Yeah, for the first oh time. my god, that mustache should have had billing all by itself. <laughs> <laughs> Sam well, Elliott was there going, get my agent on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> well, apparently oh, the reason right. why uh, he was filming Deadwood at the time and he was going back and forth, so he couldn't actually shave the mustache off. So. Uh, it was there for the entire movie. That's why it feels a little bit out of place. It's like, does anyone seriously have a mustache like that anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm envious because I would never grow a mustache. I would never have the determination to grow that handlebar. I've got a full beard now, so that it's just, it's just I, I, I try to keep it because I when I need it I, I've got it and if I don't need it mm. I can shave it in five minutes so you know that's why a lot of actors keep those beards because it's easier to shave it than it is to grow it you know mine just hides my chins 
<laughs> I like to say it hides a multitude of chins. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that later when we talk about Once Upon a River, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, with this being Ben Affleck's, I mean, this is the first time he's directed apart from, I think he did a short. Someone was mentioning, one of our guests had told us, I think it was Richard Mirish, I'm not sure about Ben Affleck doing a short film. That they were kind no, of it was. It, oh God, I can't remember the name, but it was one way. It was no, one it way. Was Tommy. Tommy. It Tommy, was Tommy. Yeah. yeah, I killed my wife, and now I've got a three picture deal at Disney or something like that. Yes. Something it was called. Yeah. <laughs> the funny. I'll tell, I'll tell you a quick funny story. We were on the set, and uh, and it was we were shooting a night shot, and I'm sitting in my my trailer, and uh, all of a sudden there was a knock on my trailer, and I and I thought they were going to call me to the set, and I opened the trailer, and it was Matt Damon. Was and he wasn't in the movie, but it was Matt Damon, right? So I, I said, "Hey, Matt, how are you?" And he goes, "John, I, I, look, I know you're working. I'm telling you, he was like a 12 year old kid." He <laughs> looked, honest to God, honest to God, it was so funny. I mean, he goes, "John, look, I know you're working, but I just want to stop by and say hello because I'm a big fan of yours. You know, I really like your work." And I mean, he was like this little kid, you know. And I said, "Well, thank you, Matt. I said I like your work too." And all of a sudden, they called me to the set, and he goes, "Oh, I'm sorry, you got to go to work. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bother you. You know." He, <laughs> he was he was, he was giving you he, the full Tom Ripley. <laughs> no, he it was beautiful. He was great. He was great. Oh, that's wonderful! Multi Oscar award winning Matt Damon. Yeah, I'd love <laughs> I'd love to work I'd love to work with him. He's a good actor. Oh, so was was uh, was Ben uh, kind of comfortable in the role? Was he kind of nervous as a first time director? Did he receive a lot of help from the cast at the time? Uh, what are your memories of him on his first feature? Well, he was nervous, uh, you know. I think uh, because he was, I mean, he he was into the script all the time. He had a great crew, by the way. The crew was fantastic. You know, he's got John Toll as a cinematographer. I mean, he's got all these Academy Award women winning uh, crew members and stuff. So, I mean, that that helps you a lot. Believe me, I'm I'm getting ready to start to direct a, a film, so I'm I, I'm I'm thinking of all this stuff. But but he, you know, he, he was just very concentrated on, on, on the script and and in the book and Eddie had read the book too. In the book there's this great entrance for, for, for Eddie's character and my character, you know. It's in it's a scene where where Michelle and Casey are in the bar shooting pool and he's mm, and he's yeah. and these guys start hassling Michelle and then they, they try to get out, you know, they're they're leaving. Well in the book they can't get out and you find out that there's a little crack in the door and they can't get out because Eddie and me have our car pushed all the way up to the door so nobody could get out. <laughs> and and uh, and I'm on top of the car going, woo, 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 woo. And, Eddie, and you know, so it was a cool entrance, you know, in, in for the characters. And, and it wasn't in the script. And Eddie and I asked Ben to put it in there. You know, we said, hey, man, you got to give us that entrance, man. It's a great entrance. And he said, well, I'll try. And then a couple of days later, he says, no, I can't. So he was kind of, and I'm not putting him down for it, but he, he was kind of stuck into the script. He wouldn't let us play with it. And so unlike Marty, who lets you fly with it, uh, Ben just wanted you to stick to the script, you know. It was, it was kind of like, you know, if you want a robot, get a robot. You know, we're, we're actors. We want to create something here, you know. So, But 
I'm not putting them down for that, but but it was a little frustrating at times. I mean, on the movie, I mean, it looked like it was absolutely freezing cold. <laughs> so, did you have any tough days shooting on the movie? Yeah, it it was cold because we shot a lot of it at night. And the one thing that I finally got Ben to do, but the the scene where I get shot, you remember the movie yeah. when I yeah. get shot? Well, it, it's up on this porch of this old house and stuff, and. It was like three o'clock in the morning, and we're shooting this, and they got the stunt guy up there to to do me getting shot, right? And I know a little bit about guns, so I, I you know, I, I I'm watching the scene, and Ben and I are sitting in the chairs, and we're watching a monitor, and this stunt guy gets shot, and it, and he goes flying over the railing of the house, you know, I mean, like he got hit with a howitzer or something, you know, he gets flying out of. And he, he gets shot with a 22, and a 22 ain't gonna do that to you. So I'm sitting there, and Ben looks at it, and we watch the scene, and he said to me, "Well, what do you think?" And I said, "It sucked." <laughs> and he goes, "What do you mean it sucked?" And I said, "You wouldn't get shot like that with a 22." And he looked at me kind of challengingly, and he said, "You want to do it?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll do it." So. I got up, got dressed, did all that stuff, you know, and, and got in there. And I just, when I got hit, I just grabbed my neck and kind of stumbled away. And then I sat down on the porch and then I re think about it and I go, oh my God, I'm shot, you know. And then I get mad that I got shot. And, you know, you go through these different emotions. And then I get on the, start to stand up and then fall down on the ground. And then Casey starts doing that. So anyway, John Toll is over there with the camera and he's circling around and he's doing this. And so after we get done, uh, John Toll said to me, that's the greatest death scene I've ever seen. And I said, well, thank you. And then when the movie opened, they did a line about that. In the review, they, they said, John Ashton gives one of the most disturbing death scenes. And, uh, yeah. So I wanted to send the clip to, to Ben and say, here, see that? <laughs> <laughs> that? That was a tough night. That was a tough night. Yeah, because I, mean, I, I saw that movie for the first time because it got pulled out of What's at the Box. And I remember getting to that point, and that that is a pretty... It's a pretty shocking death scene, really, because I think it is so natural right. for it. Because everyone thinks, oh, you get hit by a gun, you do go pinwheeling through the sky and then land in a ditch five miles away. But lots of it is exactly. it's, it's like being punched. I, I ad-libbed the whole thing. Just my feelings of, it's not the pain that, that happens at first, it's the shock of getting, that he's, he's pissed off that he got shot, for one. And then, then he realizes, oh my God, I am shot. And then he, you know, then he starts to stand up and the, and the bullet, you know, just, and then I pass, fall down. And I don't go flying over a railing or anything, you know, it's like, you know, and I, you know, believe me, I love stunt guys. I'm not putting stunt guys down at all because they're fantastic but and they risk a lot of stuff but but i i just i acted the scene out i didn't play it you know yeah well one thing which was a little bit troubling with the movie was the timing of its release here in the uk because it coincided with the news of the abduction of madeline mccann now what were your thoughts and the thoughts of the other people involved in the film round about this time when such a horrible thing had happened um, I, uh, we had a premiere here in, in Hollywood, and that was it. 
And, uh, you know, after that, I just kind of, you know, went on to my next thing, you know, but um, I, I didn't realize that that had happened, that that uh, movie was delayed because of that. Yeah, it was, it was a big thing, and, and mm -hmm. it still is a big thing to this day. It's one of those things that's never been solved that, you know, always kind of rears its head every year. But Now, who, uh, who was, who, I, I, I can't remember now, it's been so long ago. Marilyn McCain was abducted by, was she ever found? No, no, it, it's uh, still one of those haunting cases. She was, how old was she around, Steve? Can she you was about six or so. About um, six years old. Uh, it was a British family. Uh, there was on, they were on holiday. Uh, they went out for tapas or something like that, but left the little girl in the apartment, and apparently she was abducted and it's never been seen again. And, you know, there's, there's documentaries about it all on Netflix, and it's, it's been one of those really haunting stories that never really kind of goes away because new stuff still cropping up about it to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do remember at the time, uh, Gone Baby Gone was due to be released and it kind of got pulled right around the last minute and delayed because they saw it was kind of in bad taste. I was just wondering really if it affected like any other like premiere plans that you were planning to have maybe in the UK or worldwide. Well, but it's interesting to know that it never even reached you guys. Planning those premieres and all that stuff, so that's all the producer's job and stuff. And I think you're going to have to ask the producers that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just wondering if it actually came back to you, if any anyone had heard about it, the reason why it wasn't getting released in the UK when it was supposed to. Like I say, I, I went to the one in Hollywood and I was done, and I moved on to my next thing. So I just, you know. Speaking of moving on to your next thing, you would then reunite with our good friend George on the movie Middlemen, mm. which yes. uh, was in 2009, and it chronicles the story of Jack Harris, who was one of the pioneers of internet commerce, and uh, the kind of explosion of internet pornography involving <gasps> mobsters, drug addicts, etc., etc., <laughs> Now, right. as George loves to keep his relationships, um, how did he contact you about this, and how was the pitch on it? He just called me at home, and he said, uh, hey, do you want to still do this acting stuff? <laughs> 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 and I said, yeah, why? What do you think, I just disappeared or something? And uh, he said, well, I want you to do this, just a, just a cameo, this one-day thing on a movie I'm doing. Would you Would you do it? And I said, sure, George, for you, I'll do it, you know. And I hadn't read the script or anything. I said, you want me to do something, I'll do it. And I flew down to Arizona and flew in one day, shot the next day, and flew out the next day. And then it, it was actually, I read the script before I went down there, obviously, but it was pretty cool. I, I thought it was, it was kind of a funky movie, yeah. you know. Yeah, it was really good. And I've just discovered a very bizarre connection here. <laughs> that another actor starred in the movie, uh, an actor by the name of Graham McTavish, who, uh, <laughs> you know Graham McTavish. I know Graham McTavish, yes, dwelling right. himself. Yes, and he played uh, Ivan Sokolov in uh, Middlemen. But the interesting connection here, he was in the UK TV series Family, <laughs> starring <laughs> the other John Ashton. <laughs> I'm sensing a pattern going Gee. on. <laughs> well, I did. I didn't get to meet him down in Arizona. We could have talked about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know that Graham's on Twitter, so we're going to have to send him a tweet saying, right, Graham, what happened here? Who was this mystery John Ashton? 
<laughs> Our fans <laughs> need to know. You know what? I'm going yeah. to send him the link to this episode when it's out. Say, Graham, you need to come on and straighten the mystery. <laughs> of which John yeah. Ashton it was. But Middlemen is actually a really good film. I mean, I, I kind of caught yeah. it uh, off guard one night because uh, it was just on. And I really got into it. Uh has an amazing collection of cast, as George Gallo always manages to get together. Mm-hmm. So you've got um, Luke Wilson. You've got Jimmy Kahn. You've got Kevin Pollack. You have Terry Crews in there, Kelsey Grammer, yeah. uh, the late Robert Forster, who is absolutely amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Cobra Kai's Martin Cove is in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Who we were talking yeah, about yeah. the other week. Just a, an amazing collection of, of talent in this kind of true story movie. And um, it's got this weird kind of Scorsese vibe about it as well. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that that's another movie that just, you know, nobody knows about. You know, it it's, hasn't really done anything in the box office, and some some of these movies just kind of disappear. It's it's weird, you know. I, I I was playing golf the other day, not the other day. This was like five months ago, but um, some guy at the golf course came over to me and he said, "Hey, man, I saw you on this cool little movie last night." And I said, "What?" And he goes, "The Middlemen," you know. And I went, "Are you kidding? Where'd you see it?" And he goes, "I streamed it somewhere." And I went, "Oh man, I I didn't even know it was out." And uh, uh, there's one thing I've also got to mention that I didn't actually have in a format, but it's just reminded me now, um, which is a kind of link between uh, yourself and Midnight Run and Middlemen as well, as well as a couple of other projects. Uh, unfortunately, Frank Pesci passed away uh, oh, yeah, just I recently. Know. Who know. is the infamous guy who is chained to your toilet in Midnight Run. <laughs> who uh, you're basically yeah. tormenting. And uh, he was right. also... In Beverly Hills Cop One as well, he was yeah. uh, the guy with the cigarette truck in the very beginning scenes. And uh, what what an amazing guy! I actually, did a, a a bit of a read up on him. And George Gallo's like first movie, Twenty Ninth Street, was kind of based on Frank. Right. So right. it's very weird that Frank's kind of had this kind of surrounding of our show recently without even ever being on it, but his name always crops up. And unfortunately, he did pass away uh, just last week, I believe it was. Yeah, a few days ago. Oh, he's in Trapped in Paradise, too. Oh, <laughs> he's, he's in everything. He was in Trapped in Paradise. He played uh, He played the, one of the mob guys that kidnaps uh, uh, Nick Cage's mother. Yes, yes, he was. Oh my God! Yeah, because yeah, uh, George George wrote and directed that, and uh, well, and you know, because I, I, I knew Frank because I worked on all the films he worked on, so I, I knew him pretty well too. And he was a piece of work. But uh, any, I I gotta say something. About, he was also De Niro and my fuck meter in Midnight Run. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we we no. I've come back and I've referenced the fuck meter with many people. <laughs> sure. it's a wonderful idea we're, we're, we will actually send you we'll break that bit out so you can hear it so you'll find out how hilarious that scene actually was <laughs> when Steve put all of these different sound effects in to cover every episode <laughs> it was hilarious yeah. But, uh, but yeah Middlemen is an amazing movie and anyone who's listening who has not seen this movie you should watch it it mm. really is great it's, it's kind of a, a forgotten about masterpiece that not a lot of people have seen, but everyone kind of needs to discover. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure you'll be able to find it on one of the streaming platforms somewhere. It's got to be somewhere. It's probably owned by Disney nowadays. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, kind of go from there. Um, you take a lead role in the movie called Uncle John. Yes. Oh, thank God it was you. <laughs> 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 we got the wrong John to play Uncle John. But no. <laughs> no, no, that was that, that was a, a treat to do. That was a, I really enjoyed that. Um, and that that's another one that they just got a hold of me and sent me the script and asked me to do it. And I said, absolutely. And I, I loved the script. And uh, the, the character was was different and fun for to play, you know. Uh, it's kind of like Columbo in a way, you know. You know who did it right off the bat in the beginning of the movie. Uh, you know Uncle John did it. And then the whole movie's about, you know, people trying to find out who killed this guy. And, and John, Uncle John is the nice guy, the farmer who, you know, helps everybody out and stuff. And uh, But it's kind of, it's a cool movie. I loved it. And we shot it in Wisconsin, and I was very proud of it. And we won a lot of uh, festival awards for it, too. So, yeah, and uh, uh, had a very early role for Alex Moffat, who is now one of the Saturday Night Live regulars. Yeah, yeah, he played my nephew in it. It's actually, it was a really good little film. Uh, one of those movies that kind of just uh, appears. It's kind of creepy in a sense as well. Oh, I know. Um, I know. There, there's just a, it's kind of a funny, it's kind of a funny backstory, but there's a scene where I'm, I'm helping one of the neighbors with the plumbing in her house. And, and uh, so the, we, we go to shoot the scene and, and she's playing the scene like she's scared to death. And, uh, after I fix her plumbing and she's trying to hand me the pie, you know, she baked a pie and she's going, well, here, uh, I made you a pie, John. And she's playing it like, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I said to Stephen, the director, I said, Stephen, why is she playing playing the character that way, you know? The thing is, it should she's playing the character like she doesn't want to get killed because she knows John. And the thing is, John, nobody knows that John's the, the killer. And uh, anyway, it was a funny, the, the, for the actress, it was funny. And we had to tell her, no, you don't, you, you don't know anything about John. You don't know he's the killer. You're just being kind and offer him the pie to say thank you for the plumbing. And- <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's not many films where it kind of, the, the very opening of it, you're just dragging someone into like a field to burn them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the no, world. but that's, that's kind of the thing. You know that who did it right off the bat and the whole film's about you know, them trying to discover who killed the guy and and the audience knows it's me, you know. I loved it. I I, I, I really, and uh, Ronnie Jean Blevins, who's in it, uh, who, who plays the guy that I killed's brother, um, he, we did the film together and, and he, he knows, he suspects it's me because of family backgrounds and stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, then Ronnie and I later, a few la- years later, did death in Texas, but uh, I'll, we'll talk about that later, I guess. So, John, uh, around about the time, you start working on a number of pictures with Frank D'Angelo. Yes. Uh, I think the first one of them was The Neighborhood, and uh, you end up working with Danny Aiello uh, throughout these movies, as well as right. other cast members like Armand Sante, or as Steve says, Armand Sante. <laughs> and, and also 
spot the difference in delivery there. I, I only really know him from Judge Dredd. <laughs> yeah. uh, he has the greatest over-delivery in Judge Dredd of any movie I think I've ever seen. It's brilliant. Oh, Max yeah. Stallone off the screen <laughs> in any well, season. I, I haven't seen it. I'll have to watch it. He, he's actually a pretty cool guy. But, uh, yeah, that was, a, it was a great cast. Giancarlo Giannini, uh, John Savage was in it, Danny Baldwin was in it. Uh, geez, who else? Um, oh, we had uh, Margot Kidder. It was a final movie. Yeah, uh, Burt Young was in it. A great cast. It was yeah. <laughs> this sounds like the most American cast I have ever heard of a movie in my life. It's like if you were going to pick anyone to work with in like mid nineteen nineties, we want like real actors in a movie. Be like, we want Danny Aiello, Armando Sante, we want Burt Young, we want Margot Kidder. Everyone we've grown up loving movies with. Yeah, and, and the plot of uh, The Neighborhood was... Um, it's, a, it's the two families fighting each other, yeah. Yes, yes. Not not in the shotgun stories type of way, yeah. Steve. Yes. And it's not called Verona either. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I got that one. I you got that one. that one? Yeah. I did. Yes, I was, I was very happy with that one. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here all week. <laughs> <laughs> was Frank uh, a friend of yours prior or is he someone you first met on The Neighborhood and has started uh, appearing in a couple of his films afterwards he got a hold of uh, my agents and, uh, and my agents called me and they, he said Frank D'Angelo wants you to do this movie up in Canada so he called my agents, my agents called me and uh, I flew up there and did it but he's, Frankie is a trip He's a trip. I, I did, what, how many movies with him? Three or four movies. On those four movies, I worked approximately a total of eight days. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he is, he's unbel- he, shoots, he shoots a movie in two days. Jeez. He's unbelievable. I mean, I was on the set of the neighborhood, I couldn't believe it. I mean, he's got a, a crew that's just unbelievable. And, and he, you do one take and you're out. Boom, next, next, next. And you better be on your toes. And I mean, one day we were on uh, during the neighborhood. Uh, it was Franco Nero, Danny Aiello, and wow. me, right? So we're sitting in one set, and, and Frankie goes, okay, uh, uh, come with me. And we just don't know where we're going. And we get into this van and drive two blocks away and go into this barber shop. And it's a real barber shop, and he says, "Oh, okay, John, you sit in you sit in one of the chairs, and Danny, you and Franco sit at this table and play cards, and you guys start arguing, and John, you just jump in and you know and blah blah, blah and okay, let's go." <laughs> and he's, we had the scene came out pretty good. We had lived this whole scene, and and then he goes, "Okay, cut, let's go." Jumped in the van, boom, next uh, location. Uh, he's unbelievable. He's wow. absolutely unbelievable. And not not every actor can work with him because you got to be on your toes. And we shot we shot uh, the last save, which was a hockey movie, and uh, making a deal with the devil, which was a kind of a gangster movie. We shot them both at the same time. <laughs> and uh, honest to God, and is it like Roger Corman style? Roger Corman, yeah. I mean, he's just unbelievable. Well, Roger Corman, I worked with his wife, who was. She was well, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, the movie I did with his wife, I think she was trying to make a movie cheaper than her husband. You know, anyway. Um, and it was a terrible, terrible, terrible movie. And I, I hope nobody, I hope it's not on my resume anywhere. Anyway. Um, <laughs> if it is, just blame the other John Ashton. It's fine. Yeah, 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 right. Good idea. Anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, we shot, we would shoot like one scene and all of a sudden I go back to my room, my hotel room, and I get a call and I go, okay, we're going to shoot this scene at five in the morning. And, you know, we get up and then we're, we're doing a scene from another movie from uh, Making a Deal with the Devil. And we shoot that scene in a coffee shop and then we go back to the hotel take a little nap and okay, get up and we got to go to the ice rink to shoot this scene from the last save. And I mean, it's unbelievable. Wow. Uh, and we shot it like in four days, two movies in like four days. It was it's just unbelievable. That, that I mean, is staggering for me to hear because just, just from a, a simple point of logistics, never mind yeah. having to sort out the different contracts and everything, just as a simple way of being able to get locations and get the crew in and out and and so forth that is insane well a crew i mean they had to be working 24 hours a day i mean you know at least as an actor you got a little go back to your room for an hour and take a nap and then you know go do another scene and it it gets it done and he gets it done i'm guessing it with the non-union i don't know you're taking the fifth on that one i think yeah. i'm taking i'm taking a fifth on that one i leave that shit up to my agent you know i, I just give me give, give me the script and let me go to work that's my attitude you know so. you well, you guys handle that's why i hire you you guys handle that stuff so <laughs> yes yeah get me on the plane get me in my hotel room get me my pages yeah. And let me go to yep, work. That's it. That's it. That's exactly how I am. <laughs> but where am I staying? <laughs> what time do I have to be there? And what scenes are we doing? That's all I want to know. Well, one project I know that is uh, very close to your heart uh, was around this time when you did Once Upon a River. You've mentioned yes. this film a couple of times in the previous episodes, like we've been building up to it. Mm-hmm. Because obviously it is something that is very special to yourself. What can you tell us about Once Upon a River? Well... My manager called me and said uh, they they're interested in you. Actually, they wanted Bruce Dern for the role, um, but my manager handles Bruce and me, and uh, Bruce was working at the time, so he mentioned me to them, and they went, "Oh my God, that'd be great. We'd love to have John." So it, the his script is taken from a book. It, the book's fascinating. I read the book and. And the, the script was great, and as a young female director was doing it, and and the stories about this this young native girl, uh, well half native, and she runs away from home in the beginning through all these family tragedies that happen, and her father gets killed and stuff. And anyway, she she takes off uh, up the river uh, to go find her mother, who abandoned her when she was uh, about two years old. And on the way up the river, she meets these different people. And one of the people she meets is, is Smoke, uh, my character, who's a hermit that lives on the river. He takes her in uh, out of the, the, the weather and stuff, and she stumbles across them. And he takes her in, and, and um, he's a, a, a special, special guy. And, and uh, there's no sex involved or anything. It's a... Um, it's just his character and their relationship. And we've won all sorts of, of festival awards. And 
I went out to the woods and sat in the woods and read the book just so I could read it in, in that atmosphere. And, um, and their relationship that develops, I mean, she takes care of him and, she, uh, and he takes care of her. And then she goes up, she finally leaves and goes up the river uh, and finds her mom and her mom's a real jerk. And then she leaves and goes back to smoke. And uh, I don't want to give anything away, but but it's just, it's a beautiful story. And I love playing the character. I mean, I just melted into that character like I did with, with Dorfler. And it just, I didn't feel like I was acting. I was being, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I tell a story when we go to these festivals and have Q&As after. And when I first met Harula Rose as the director, uh, I flew to Chicago and... And we shot it up in, in Antioch, Illinois, up by the rivers and lakes up there. So I first meet her, and we go out to dinner, and uh, I was having some dental work done. And I had a partial plate in my front, my first, my three front teeth. I had a partial plate. So in the middle of dinner, I said, uh, I got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And I went to the bathroom, and I took the partial out. <laughs> And I went back to the table and I smiled and showed her and I and I said, What do you think? And she said, Oh my God, would you do that for the movie? How did you do that? Because <laughs> I had no I had no three front teeth and were missing. So I, I did it for the movie and uh I I had a full beard. Luckily I was growing a beard at the time, so I kept it for the character and I, it was just one of the it's just a beautiful story and it's all about the characters and the story, and it's no blow-ups and bullshit. As a matter of fact, we we uh, showed it at the Bentonville, Arkansas uh, Film Festival, and uh, they had a screening one night. And, and that, again, I, I, I saw it, the first showing of it, and we did the Q&A. And then she says, okay, uh, I see you over really. And she said, we're having another screening, you know, in a couple hours, so... I said, okay, I'll be there after the after the show for the Q and A. And she said, "What? You don't want to see it again?" I said, "I saw it once, and that's all I need to see it." <laughs> she and she kind of shook her head; she couldn't understand it. So anyway, I go back later for the second screening, and I come into the Q and A, and it was just the the end of the movie was just going on as I came in, so it was pitch dark, and then all of a sudden the movie ended. And I feel this big hug and, and this crying and this big hug in, in the dark. And I don't know who, who's hugging me. And I go, oh, my God, that was just beautiful, you know. And all of a sudden, the lights came up and it was Judge Reinhold. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he lives in Little Rock and he only lives a couple hours from Bentonville. So but it was so weird, you know, that big bear hug. You know, that was beautiful, man. So, so, is that a banana uh, in your pocket, or are you just no, never mind? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're just happy to see me, yeah. Um, no, so anyway, the movie's the movie's beautiful, and, and like I say, it, it's uh, I've won a lot of awards on it and and the festivals and stuff. But uh, go see it if you can, and I, I think yeah. it's still streaming somewhere. But I'm very, very, very proud of it. And, yeah, the, I mean, the movie was uh, it was made in 2019, and only got released last year officially so what was there a kind of hold up well no actually we shot that in 2017 wow and we when we were supposed to open it the ninth uh 2019 
and it was going to open in theaters and everything. And then the pandemic hit, and it, so it never did. So it's kind of unfortunate because it's a wonderful film. I'm, uh, you know, and Kennedy De La Serna, who plays the young girl, is absolutely is the first her first film, and she's absolutely fantastic in it. And we we had such a great relationship in the film and, and off camera too. So, yeah, if you can go see it, it's I, I'm very proud of it, and it's something. Something very unlike I've done on film, you know. I've done those characters on stage before, but I never, I've never had the opportunity. They always want me to play a cop on film or something. But, you know, uh, I it was just I felt like I was doing a play all while I was doing it. So it's very one of those different kind of movies that come mm -hmm. along every once in a while, I guess. More of a character piece. Very, very much of a character piece, yeah. and you know, there's a minor, act, you know, some shootings in the beginning and stuff, but. Very minor. The movie's about her and her travels and her growing up, and it's a wonderful film. I, I'm very proud of it. Well, when I finally got to meet you, uh, well, first time we were in the same room together, I should say, was uh, at the Edinburgh Comic Con uh, for the right. love of uh, Edinburgh, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> for whatever they decided to call it. For the, hey, love, for of the, for the love of Yeah, for the love of movies, or it was something like that. Um, and you were there with Judge. When we got talking, and I think we were texting uh, and, and messaging each other through Facebook, and you were just about to take a flight to go and film the movie Death in Texas. And Ronnie, Ronnie Jean Blevins, who, who's my nemesis in uh, Uncle John, uh, wanted me to be in the movie. And, and Ronnie Jean's the lead of, of Death in Texas. And, and you know, Edinburgh was cool, but. You know, I did theater in Edinburgh. I was there six weeks in Edinburgh doing theater at the Edinburgh Arts Festival. And uh, that was back in 1970. Um, and we did like 50, 15 different uh, plays and repertory. Uh, we were on the, I was on the USA Festival Theater Tour. Uh, so it was kind of a homecoming to me going, coming back there. But we were so busy all the time in Edinburgh, I never had the chance to get out and do anything, you know, or go see anything. I, I love doing these comic cons and seeing the fans and and having fun with them and doing reminiscing and and stuff. But uh, you know the the bad part is you never get a chance to see anything. You know, Judge and I were in Stuttgart, Germany, and the same thing. I had done theater in Stuttgart, and uh, we were in a hotel or the convention center the whole time and never got. So anyway, it's fun to do. But uh, anyway, Death in Texas. They wrote the the role for me. Ronnie really wanted me to play, and, and I, I I play a dirty cop that becomes a hero at the end, and and uh, and Bruce Bruce and I are kind of I play a, a, a sheriff, and uh, he plays a he he owns a ranch and he's a drug smuggler, and uh, and I I'm in cahoots with him smuggling the drugs in, and then later I find out he's smuggling girls in too, and that's when I turn against him and go with Ronnie. And, so I kind of change change partners there and and become the hero and I, I don't know if I should give this away but it, uh, it, it's it's kind of famous so I should, probably should. Bruce Dern is the only person to ever kill John Wayne on camera. Yes, yeah, that's true. In the movie The Cowboys, yeah, Bruce, Bruce Dern kills John Wayne and the he was notorious for that. And Bruce told me a funny story. He said. You know, right before we shot the scene, John Wayne said to him, you know, you're going to be the most hated man in this country. 
and Bruce said, not in Berkeley, I won't. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Uh, you, know, you know what Berkeley is, a very liberal. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, I get to kill Bruce Dern in Death in Texas, and I play the sheriff. And yeah, you never know my name. They always call me uh, Asher, A-S-H-E-R. Well, at the very end, after I shoot him, I call to get an ambulance to come out, and I say, this is John Wayne Asher. <laughs> so so, so it's, it's kind of a Hollywood inside joke that my name is John Wayne, and I shoot Bruce Dern. So it's... Oh, I love it. <laughs> Genius. You go for an entire career just to get a moment like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Death in Texas is a movie that you can actually catch on streaming. I think it is on Now TV here in the UK, and it is a great movie. Uh, you, you should check it out. Uh, we we kind of had this uh, conversation just recently where we were talking about how a lot of, well, I guess you could call Hollywood movies, they're all kind of stale and all run off the same kind of platform, but these movies are the most rewarding watches you can get. Uh, and it's like you were saying on last week's episode, Steve, because you got to watch uh, Brokeback Mountain for yes, the first time. Yes, and it did. just completely changed your perception of that movie with just one watch. Mm -hmm. And these independent movies are real movies. And yep. uh, you've had mm -hmm. just this outstanding career that we've now covered over four episodes. Four episodes. That I think we'd have to get Bruce Dern on to beat five. <laughs> but um no i mean y your career has been absolutely fantastic and you're still belting out these amazing roles to this day oh, thank you you know it's been an absolute pleasure but don't think you're getting off the hook of coming on this podcast again even though we've covered oh. your entire career we're bringing you on for other stuff yes <laughs> okay well, i'm i'm here i'd love to do it i love doing it with you guys well you might not love this bit john because uh -oh. earlier earlier today, before we came on, I threw out something on Facebook saying, okay, we're going to have John Ashton on the show. And uh, if you have any questions for the man, then ask them and we will ask them on air. Are you ready for this? Sure. <laughs> I, can, oh, I yeah. no? can I say no? Can I say no? <laughs> oh, of course you can say it. No, say no, it. I don't. It doesn't no, mean that we'll I, pay I, any attention. No. <laughs> Man, I, no, I love doing this. I love doing this okay. stuff. If you don't want to answer, just say the person's name and say, go F yourself in true Marvin uh, style. The only thing I won't answer is something I might get sued for. That's <laughs> <laughs> I, believe me, I have a lot of opinions that I'm not going to put on the air, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, our very own music man, Neil Pretty, straight out of the gate, asks how many bananas can actually fit into a tailpipe? <laughs> <laughs> I never tried it, so I don't know. I would assume yeah. it'd depend on the make of car, wouldn't it? Yeah. True, and you might have a duel. You might have yeah. a duel instead of a single pipe, you know? Yeah, yeah. or one with just a really large bore on it. Yeah. Yes. yeah, it depends on your muffler, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. John's response is bend over and he'll show you. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, and you do you do know the original script? There was a potato. You do know that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, funny enough. Uh, oh, for God's sake, James Meakin. <laughs> this is the name we've heard way too many times. 
Will you sign his banana, please? <laughs> he said, well, I don't know good. how to get it. <laughs> <laughs> ne- neither does Jim. Okay, so can, um, I, can I can I just go to the store and buy a James Macon banana or what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure enough. If I, we'll just get you to sign his coffee cup. There we go. Yeah, I think he'll be happy on that. That coffee cup has actually been outside of the hotel where the actual banana in the tailpipe scene happened. I took it there just for him because obviously I don't have anything going on in my life. Um, but James Meekin also asks, during Beverly Hills Cup, were you ever caught off guard by any antics going on? No, we had a few, but, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned this before, you know, I, I know guns pretty well. And and uh, I, I'm really careful with them on the set. The only thing that that shocked me a few times were, you know, a lot of times the prop guys will give you guns and way before they should. And there were a few times Eddie started shooting his gun between his legs and stuff. And, I, and I'm going, hey man, these ain't toys, you know. And, I, <laughs> and then the one thing, uh, Ronnie Cox in the second one was supposed to end at a certain date because he had another film to do. And if they didn't end by that date, they had to pay him like this enormous amount of money. So he went over and all this stuff. So there, there was a, a TV show called The Six Million Dollar Man with uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Lee Majors. Yeah. So on Ronnie's trailer, Judge and I got a piece of, of masking tape and put it over his name and wrote on there, The Six Thousand Dollar Man. And of course, the assistant director came. Who did that to Ronnie's trailer? Who did they? Oh, you know, and the judge and I were just kind of sneaking around. And another funny thing we did: uh, we were shooting on the on the streets one day and, uh, during uh, Beverly Hills Cop Two. And the first day we were shooting, somebody stole uh, Eddie's chair back. You know, where it's got the chair back that says Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. You know, Axel Foley or blah blah. blah. And the second day, somebody stole my tear back. And then the third day, somebody stole Eddie's again, you know? So, I mean, we were getting him stolen. And Judge came in fuming one day. And we said, what's the matter with you? And he goes, nobody's stolen my chair back yet. (laughs) (laughs) So Eddie and I stole it and hit it on him, you know? And he came running to the set with a big smile on his face. Somebody stole my chair back, yay! (laughs) And Eddie, he didn't know that Eddie and I took it. (laughs) <laughs> okay uh, next question what would have been your opinion on a spin-off series based on characters from beverly hills cop i think there was actually a tv series or a tv pilot that they did yeah it never sold yeah which was was it supposed to be uh the son of axel foley or something like that oh god yeah they sh- they shot it they shot it and i wasn't in it and uh uh, Sean Ryan, who was directing it and wrote this pilot script, called me and wanted to meet me. So I flew out to California to meet him, and uh, I read the script and I wasn't even in it. So I had the meeting, and he said uh, we talked and talked and talked, and then he said, "Well, I just want to let—I just want to ask you, you know, if the show goes, will you be in it?" And I said, "I don't understand why I'm not in the pilot." You know, and he said, well, you know, we want to change some things. And it was about Eddie's son and uh, who gets in trouble in L.A. And then Eddie comes out and, you know, Eddie was actually executive producing it. And he, you know, he did the pilot with him. But uh, it was it was shot for CBS. It never got picked up. 
But Judge even told me, because Judge did a cameo at the very end of the pilot, and, and Judge told me they were sitting there having lunch, and everybody at lunch said, where the hell is Taggart? How come Taggart's not in this? You retired at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Down yeah, in Mexico yeah. or whatever it was. Playing Arizona. Golf. Arizona <laughs> playing golf. That was it. That was yeah. the one. So uh, hopefully they'll do cop four and I'll be in that. And according to you, I guess I am, but I don't know. Do you know the amazing thing is, uh, funnily enough, I'm going to pull this up here. So on Beverly Hills Cop 4, and the only person who's actually listed in the credits is Eddie, of course, because yeah. there wouldn't be a movie, I guess, without Eddie Murphy. <laughs> There'd be a, a TV pilot, I guess, with his son. Uh, but but didn't you say it, it, that I was... I was signed yeah. to do it or something? If if you go on to IMDB, the first yeah. piece of trivia that comes up under the Did You Know, and it's highlighted right there, John Ashton is set to return. It wouldn't be right without you in there, and we've said that before. Well, and you know. Judge. It, it, it's it's got to be the three of us. I mean, you know, yeah. Eddie says that in the second one. He says, come on, man, we're the three musketeers. Doing it without us just doesn't make it the same movie I don't think no yeah no it isn't <laughs> maybe it's the other John Ashton maybe it's the John Ashton in England that they're gonna oh imagine that screw up <laughs> <laughs> he turns up on the first day really glad to be working in Hollywood next oh well, well I'll tell you I'll tell you funny I don't know if I told you this but Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson after the first one was such a hit they their their idea to do the next ones they wanted to go all over the world with them and the second one was supposed to take place in England. Yeah, in London. Yeah. Yep. They wanted, and, and, and which I thought would be funny with, you know, judging me and Eddie screwing the bobbies up in the Scotland Yard and all that stuff. I thought it would, I thought it would have been hysterical. But Eddie didn't want to go out of the country, so we never did it. Well, apparently the filming locations for Beverly Hills Cup 4 is Detroit. So that'll have to do, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Not, not as glamorous, really. No. <laughs> but, uh, no. <laughs> well, we're hoping by the next time that we do have you on, we are actually going to hear that that is an, an actual reality. If I find out that it's a reality and I'm in it, I will email you and tell you. <laughs> awesome. Tim ben. Well, that, we'll break that exclusive on here. That'll be even better. <laughs> All right. Well, even though that is a number four, uh, we do have to ask you about your nominate five. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five. Yes, nominate five. But three or four or six or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. Okay, and nominate five. What could we possibly ask and nominate five for John Ashton? He's been here three times before. Mm. But uh, we know that he has played golf all over the world. And yes, I know that we did a golf-themed one on Rick Rossovich's... Rick Rossovich? Rick Rossovich? Did we have Rick Rossovich on the show? Who the hell's oh. Rick Rossovich? Oh, Rick Ravanello. I do apologize. I yes. if he gets that a lot. <laughs> I loved you in Top Gun, man. <laughs> that was Top Gun. <laughs> but, um, yes, in the Rick Ravanello episode, yes, we did focus on uh, his top five favorite people to play golf with in the celebrity realm. Yes. But for John, being the well-traveled golfer that he is, we want to know where his, well, his nominate five for the best golf courses around the world that he plays on. Are you ready to tee off, John? 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Let's go for number five. What have you got for us? Riviera Country Club in Los Angeles. Well, that might be the just... one I'm going to play it. <laughs> oh, Riviera is great. I've played it about a half a dozen or about a dozen times. It's great. Great. That's where they just had the Genesis tournament, the PGA did, last week. Uh, it's a great golf course. Wow. Okay. okay. So what's number four going to be? Yeah. Um, Pebble Beach. Where's that? Pebble Beach is in, Car- is in uh, Monterey Bay. Mm-hmm. They have the, pe- the Pebble Beach. It's a great golf course. Spyglass. Yeah. W- which is right next to Pebble Beach. Oh, so Pebble Beach are getting two. Yeah. So that means we're at number, what number are we at now? Two? Yeah. Yeah, we got number two. Well, we're on three, aren't we? We're on three. We're on four. <laughs> See, this never I goes well. Riviera. Yep. Pebble the, Beach. Yep. Spy, Spyglass. Yep. That's that's three. Yep. Uh, I'm saving the best one for last, and I'm trying to think of one uh, before that. Uh, just about anywhere in Hawaii, I would say. <laughs> oh, of course. Because uh, I played uh, Kanapali. I played uh, uh, all those up in that in, in Maui. I played just about all of those, and they're great. And uh, number five? Number five or number one, whichever way this is yeah. going. But the favorite place? Cypress Point in Monterey Bay. The, wow. mecca of, the mecca of golf. So that's where all of the best golf courses are. Oh, no, the three up there, Spyglass, Pebble Beach, and Cypress Point, they're unbelievable. Monterey Bay has just got some great golf courses up there. That, that, that's where my getaway, when I lived in Los Angeles, my getaway spot was Carmel, which is up in Monterey Bay. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I was up there on, I, I had just finished doing uh, the movie in Paris with Gerard Depardieu. And oh, yeah. I, I had just finished that, and I went up to Pebble Beach to play golf. And while I was up up there is when I got the call to do my series hardball. Mm-hmm. And and I had made all my tee times, and they said, you got to be here on Tuesday. I said, I have a tee time on Tuesday. I'm not going to be there Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and I played golf, and then I went there. And, but that was a long story. I, I was negotiating my thing with, with hardball. So they're great golf courses, like I said. And, Hawaii's got some good ones. New Zealand's got some strange ones. <laughs> in what way? That's the first time in my life I played a golf course and I went to go, I hit my ball, uh, you know, in the, in the trees. And I went to get it and I saw a sign that said, beware of quicksand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Swear to God. I mean, have you ever seen that on a golf? Beware of quicksand? So it's a literal sand trap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, there you go. For all of you golf nuts out there, you now know where John Ashton says the best courses in the world are. And uh, we want to see you go play them. And hopefully I'll be uh, hitting uh, the white hitting the white stuff. I really am going to LA. <laughs> hitting the white ball. <laughs> at the Riviera myself, or whichever golf course it is that Bill is taking me on. And hopefully... Uh, you'll get the time to swing out there as well, John. It'll be good to uh, yeah. get you on the well, green. Actually, I'm going to Florida next week to play Joe Namath's tournament in Florida. Nice. So that, that, get out of the snow here. So and I know, and you're going to be in L.A. Try to play Riviera. It's a great golf course. 
I will. I, I'll send you a picture when I'm looking there completely out of my element. And you'll be like, <laughs> look at this asshole. You just you need to hold golf. the club by the thin bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's yes. the best piece of advice. Beware of the kukuyu grass. I think I bought some of that in Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the rough there is, is kukuyu grass. You've got to swing it as hard as you can to get it out of there. I, I'm just going to concentrate on putting that uh, little white ball in one of them hole things. Yeah, that's yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, okay, um, John, um, what have you got going on? You've mentioned that you're uh, getting set to direct your first feature. Um, yes, do you have I'm, any uh, other projects in the wings? Uh, yeah, kinda. Uh, but I'm I'm looking at that now. I'm really kind of excited about that. Actually, the producers of uh, Death in Texas. I, uh, I was talking to them, and they they're talking to me about directing something so I'm, I'm reading scripts right now trying to decide what I want to do actually there's a there's a book that I read years ago that uh, I would love to have uh, made into a movie and uh, I'm talking to them about that but I but I've got some other scripts here that some writers have sent me so I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that it'd be it'd be interesting uh, another aspect you know yeah uh, anyway I'm, that's what I'm doing <laughs> Never too old to get into new ventures, John. No, you're, you're absolutely. You know, and I, I wanted I wanted to say earlier we were talking about independent films and you know the films of Marvel now and all the blow up things the studios are doing. I I just love doing these independent films, working with these young young kids that are eager and 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 uh, great story, little stories that they want to tell, and and they're so excited to be at work and. And get away from the the jadiness of Hollywood, you know. It's like everybody complaining about everything and stuff. And these kids are, you know, they're they're so energetic and uh, they're just fun to work with. They're just great to work with. I, believe me, I get scripts. I turn stuff down all the time. I go, I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that. My agents get all frustrated. And I, you know, <laughs> it's nice to be at the point of my life and my career that I can choose what I want to do. You know. So, and I want to do good stuff. I want to do stuff that's meaningful to me and, and hopefully sends a nice message to an audience and, and not just some, you know, guy zapping somebody, you know, it's just. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm full in agreement with you. Um, you know, we're, we're hoping that whatever projects that you've got going on, you're going to come and talk to us about them and hopefully they'll, uh, they'll tick all the boxes. But, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Ticking the box. Steve. What's in the box? Oh, yeah. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Please don't pick American Christmas, okay? <laughs> well, I, by the sound of things, I don't think that's going to be an issue. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, actually, people that have seen it really like it, but it's kind of corny. However, to qualify for what's in the box, you have to be certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and something tells me it may not be. Don't know, haven't had a look at the, the rating. We could be wrong. Um, but uh, to qualify for what's in the box, like I said, it has to be certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Andy has got a list of films which are in a box and he's going to pull out the name of one and if i have seen it then he's going to keep pulling out names out the box until we find one that i haven't seen and then i'm going to go away and i'll watch that the day before we record our next episode i love that the fact i have a list in a box 
No, I don't have a list in a box. I have a box where I just pull names out. Okay. So, okay. You know. Oh God! Don't don't confuse our listenership, Steve. Come on, we're, we're only like what both 40 of them? episodes. In. <laughs> yeah, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> if we lose, if we lose one, we're not getting any funding. Um, okay. Uh, so I've dug my hand into the box. I pulled a couple out mm-hmm. here just in case because I think the first one, yes, you will have seen, and it is Disney's animated The Jungle Book. Oh yes, years of ago. Of course, yeah. yes. Who hasn't seen that? Who hasn't seen that? Okay, let's uh, go for the second one. Uh, oh, maybe th- our first Ryan Reynolds movie. Have you seen? Definitely, maybe. Was that Ryan Reynolds? Yes. No, I haven't. Okay, well, definitely, maybe is your movie for next week. Oh, have I? Oh, oh, don't do this to me again, <laughs> Steve. Come, I'm pretty on. sure I haven't. Okay, this I'm... is how we started the season off. Definitely, maybe it's Ryan Reynolds. It's uh, Elizabeth Banks, uh, is it Isla Fisher? Oh, that, no, I've Which, not seen it, no. Oh, cool, okay, well, you've got it. Yep. You're going to see Ryan Reynolds being his most Ryan Reynolds in a Ryan Reynolds movie. So Where he's you'll, not you'll, wearing a red suit. Yes, exactly. So you'll have fun with that, and uh, if you want to watch it yourselves, do watch it. It'll be on the beginning of next week's show. You'll hear about Steve's first viewing of it. But for now, we want to thank our MVP, mm. John Ashton. Um, every single time we get you on, we have fun. And uh, yeah. you're going to continue to come on. We're, we're going to find a way every single season to have you come on on something. <laughs> I would love to. Uh, you, I would lo- I'd lo- I'd love talking to you guys. You're, you're a lot of fun. It's like, uh, you know, sitting around the pub talking. It's fun. <laughs> Although I don't sit around pubs anymore, that, those days are long gone. But anyway. well, you know, you can you can still sit there, but uh, it's, it's it's what you're drinking. That's that that's what makes a difference. Yeah, and believe me, I love the pub. I love the pubs over in, in your country. So uh, if it helps you, me and Steve have only been to the pub together once in the last two years. Yeah, we managed to get out for one evening, and it, it was amazingly bizarre because it was like, wow. We both let ourselves go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's pretty hard to beat beat a Guinness with some fish and chips. It's pretty hard to oh. beat. That. Oh yeah. Don't a kebab, mate. Don't a kebab. <laughs> yes. You usually see Steve outside with a donut kebab. And hopefully, we're going to get you into one of these uh, Manchester Comic Cons. We want to see you here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. love to. I'm talking to them about it, and I'm talking to Andy about it. So, uh, yes, definitely, hopefully. we need to get hopefully. you over here because they're doing the comic cons back here in Manchester again. Yeah, and Manchester is one place we want to see you. We want to take out. We'll all have lunch. Right. Well, I told you, I used to play a golf tournament there. Yeah, which course was it? We played. Uh, I think it's called Mir Country Club. Yes. It, Obviously, not about... enough to rank in the top five, but you know. No, but it, <laughs> no, but it was fun. Mir, it's, it's it's about ten miles outside of Manchester. Johnny Mathis had a tournament in Belfast, and we used to go to Manchester and play Mir, and then we get on a plane and fly over to Belfast for Johnny Mathis's tournament. This show yeah, is that's... slowly but surely becoming about golf, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, believe me, I you know I've played enough of it over the years. You know, so. Yeah. Did I tell you? So, did I ever tell you that that I followed Johnny Mathis on stage and brought the house down? No. <laughs> we're, we were in we Manchester. Howard Keel, who did Oklahoma on Broadway, and he played Curly, 
Well, I, I get Oklahoma and play Judd Fry on stage. So we were, out, we were going to the golf course one morning, and Howard and I were talking about it. So we start singing Poor Judd is Dead in the, in the van that morning. So Howard says to me, hey, you want to do that at the show tonight? So I said, sure, Howard, we'll do it. Well, Johnny Mathis goes on, and he has got the house mesmerized, right? And we're supposed to follow him. So I look over at Howard, and I said, Howard, you want to follow that? And he said, we'll be fine, kid, we'll be fine. So we went up and did Poor Judd is Dead and brought the house down. So I can always <laughs> say I followed Johnny Mathis and brought the house down. That's wonderful. <laughs> that was awesome. Well, we're going to wrap up the show for today. As we say, it's been uh, fantastic. We look forward to having you back. We look forward to seeing you in person. Hopefully, uh, if hopefully. I get a chance, I might hopefully get a chance to catch up with you in L.A. if you're in town. Okay. In the meantime, you look after yourself. You keep in touch. And, you uh, too. We'll see you soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. And it's a pleasure always with you guys. And, and any time I'll do, do another show with you. But yes, uh, so yeah, everyone, uh, tune in to us uh, next week. Uh, Bill Daly will be returning to mm -hmm. reclaim his crown that John Ashton's just stole from him. He's coming on to talk about the uh, anniversary of Mars attacks. Uh, which... Yes, exactly. So uh, we will catch you then. Have you got anything to say, Steve, in English? It's bye for now. Bye bye. 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 Thank you.